This is the Criterion Creeps Podcast. I'm Jared Duncan. RJ Baylog. And we're just a couple of fellas who have no other choice now but to creep our way through the Criterion Collection one spawning number at a time in order of release. And believe us when we say we're in it for the long haul. This week, we're tackling spine number 10 in the Criterion Collection, Walkabout, directed by Nicholas Rogue from 1971. We hope everyone's brought their didgeridoo because we're going to go to the land down under. But first, RJ, how are you? Oh, I've been better, man. Yeah? I've been better. You want to hear some shit? You want to hear some real shit that happened to me at work today? Yes, we all want to hear some shit. Okay, so here's the score. Yeah. Uh, A lab mate had her uh, thesis defense today. Mm-hmm. And uh, she passed, and it was a great success, and there was m- many celebrations. Uh, the leaders of the lab brought in um, some treats and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, after the actual defense, I had to go into the back lab part and do some uh, some some work. So I wasn't part of the festivities, uh-huh. and I came out later, and uh, it seemed like everything was fine. And then uh, another guy in my lab came up, and he said, hey, did you get that cupcake? And I said, "What cupcake?" He oh, said, "Well, they brought no. in a huge thing of cupcakes for uh, for the defense." <laughs> and mm-hmm. he said, "I put one on your desk." And I was like, "What?" Because what? I was there. I was like, "There's no cupcake here." Uh-huh. So someone in that building had the audacity to take another man's cupcake. Like, so it's not <laughs> it's not like it was like sitting out in like a common area where like mm-hmm. you know like sometimes people do that like. They'll have like a cake for somebody and there'll be like three or four pieces left and they'll just put it in like the kitchen where it's like free game. This was like over in my office on my desk and someone went and stole it and ate it. So I did not get a delicious cupcake. Right. And now uh, I don't think I'm ever going to eat again. So RJ, do you do you work at a jail? <laughs> uh, some would call it that. Well, okay, I'm just thinking it's like, oh, maybe there's like a, some symbolism here that needs to be like investigated. Like, I don't know, maybe they took your cupcake because they're calling you a cupcake. Oh, shit. Yeah. I do have a lot of enemies at work. Right. Because I'm always yelling at people about honey and coffee and uh, yeah. trying to get their barbecue sauce on my spoons and stuff like that. Mm. So Talking about I, podcasts. Podcasts, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of animosity towards <laughs> me in general, so... Uh, you know, it might have it might have been a power um, a power play. Someone might be trying to assert their uh, their dominance over me, but I'm not gonna let it stand. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna bake myself three dozen cupcakes. Yeah. I'm gonna sit down in the kitchen and I'm gonna open up a clinic, just eating those puppies one at a time, I'm Newman style from Seinfeld, just muffin like muffin stumps. I'll have three quarts of milk and I'll just sit there all goddamn day. And people will be walking by and I won't let anyone have a single one. Well, what are you going to do when that like this person comes and just like pushes you over and takes your cupcake? Are you? Are you? Are I'd you... like to see them fucking try. You know, the the only reason I think I I wasn't able to defend my cupcake was I had no idea it ex- it, it even existed. So don't. As that's that's like said, even worse in some ways. You don't even yeah. know you have a cupcake being stolen from you. That's... Yeah, I didn't even know until it had already happened. So. I'd like to see him try, Jared, to repeat what we said last week. Never rub another man's rhubarb. That's right. Because now it's coming words back. To, words to live by. Yeah. How are you doing? Um, Man, just like, I don't know. I think one of the most annoying things in the world is uh, like on floor below us, there's like the music department. 
And uh, it seems like people in music uh, think it's like perfectly acceptable and fine to wander around floors that aren't their own and mm-hmm. sing to themselves and practice their tunes. I, I don't know. It's just the most bizarre thing. You just see these men. You, it's always it's like not girls. It's usually the guys, and they're just wandering around and they're mommy, 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 It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Jared? Those are the same assholes that are stealing <laughs> cupcakes off of people's desks. Well, probably. They're and they're probably like going into people's offices, like right mm-hmm. into like their places. Just eh, you don't need that anymore. You don't need like, it. Mommy, 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 as they eat mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Fucking unbelievable. Um, yeah. That's not any way to contribute into a yeah. uh, functioning society. No, I mean, I'd, I'd love to be able to blame millennials, but uh, the, the, I've seen like people that are like 18 years old to like 60-year-old men just wandering around, just testing out their pipes in, in spaces that are not, are not welcoming to this type of crap, mm-hmm. in my opinion. That's disheartening for yeah. humanity as a whole. I don't approve. Mm-hmm. So it's, I guess we, you and me are both swimming in shit. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to try to swim above it all. Um, what have you been creeping on this week, RJ? Oh, I did some light creeping. Okay. I, I did some light creeping for you this week. Uh, I got a good creep mm-hmm. and I got a not so good creep. Oh, is, is, is that a, a, like a bad creep egg? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was speckled and I thought that was just some garish design <laughs> from the chicken, but the yeah. inside it was... No. It was foul. It was like one of those half embryos Ooh. that was like almost born, and you you just oh, no. feel bad for even opening it in general. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt after I had watched it. I just felt bad, you know. But anyways, anyways. so the good creep. Um, I got around and uh, I watched a movie I'd been putting off for a while for no real reason. I just just hadn't watched it yet. But yep. uh, I watched the Coen Brothers uh, Inside Lou and Davis mm-hmm. on the Netflix. And that was pretty good, pretty solid movie. Um, oh, you're getting ahead on our uh, Criterion creeping. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> but that's like that'll be like 15 fucking years from now. So yeah, I think it's fine that that's, I watched that's it. That's true. Um, no, I liked it. I thought it was really good. Uh, I got to say, it's not up there with my faves uh, for the for the Coen Brothers. I guess it's it's yeah. a lot better than any other regular Joe's movies. Um, I did like it. There were at times I was a little bit uh, just, I don't know, not like bored, but I was just kind of like, what's happening? Indifferent? You know what I'm, yeah. I was like, yeah, this is fine. Um, things are fine. I, well, I think like, I mean, um, did you ever see A Serious Man? No, that's uh, that's one of the other ones I haven't seen. I think it was the only ones I haven't really seen are uh, Inside Lou and Davis, A Serious Man, and uh, Blood Simple. Oh yeah, well yeah. Hey, speaking of Criterion movies coming out, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I'd say like Coen Brothers movies generally they get better as you watch them again. Um, I would right. say that I was probably on the same page with you the first time I watched it. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was good and like I liked it, but it was kind of like ah, there's something missing. Um, and then I watched it again and things started really working for me a lot better. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I would just say like when whenever you get around to rewatching that movie, uh, I think mm-hmm. I think you'll like it more. Um, I guess like the the my thing with that movie is I just it has that orange cat in it that <laughs> is like the coolest cat in a movie. So uh, yeah. that movie gets a pass because <laughs> it's got like that, no, I, that that good of a cat. So yeah, I agree with you, man. I think actually, so I think like for the first half or so, I was kind of like 
indifferent to it, but um, when it did that, that kind of kick where it was kind of implying that this guy's life is just cyclical and everything he does kind of like comes back on itself. Like right. I thought that really impressed me and like um, I thought the same thing. I was like on on rewatching, I bet that'll stick out more and then I'll like it more. But uh, no, I, I thought it was really good. I just uh, I wouldn't rank it up there in the tops, but it did have uh, my main man, America's sweetheart, John Goodman, as mm -hmm. many of theirs do. And he was in top form. So that was a big win. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely their last good movie because their last movie was Hail Caesar, which uh, we saw together uh, several mm -hmm. uh, months ago. And uh, yeah, it just uh, that I didn't like that movie at all, very and much at all. I didn't think it was funny. Um, Coen Brothers' comedies are really hit and miss for me. Uh, yeah. Like from like Raising Arizona to Hudsucker Proxy. Um, I mean, like Big Lebowski. Yeah, I mean everyone should love that mm -hmm. movie unless there's something wrong with them. Uh, right. But yeah, and then like they're kind of like that weird middling period where they had like Intolerable Cruelty and their Lady Killers mm -hmm. remake. All stuff. It's like I I own everything but those two movies. Um, yeah. And I and I won't own Hill Caesar either. I just I don't care mm. for whatever they were going for. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Inside Leland Davis is it's a movie I think like yeah I can't I'm looking forward to the time when I have to ever rewatch it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there's always something new in the docket, so I don't know. But it's definitely something I would rewatch their stuff yeah. I, I have nothing really insightful to say about that movie except that i mm -hmm. liked it <laughs> I, w I will say yeah I, I agree with you i will say that um my uh my girlfriend andrea and uh one of my um good friends uh they both watched the documentary that pairs with it yeah that's like all about the music and like it's just kind of like them sitting down with like jt and uh, adam driver and oscar isaac and like mumford and sons or whatever yeah and uh they're just playing the music and uh both my girlfriend and my friend said they kind of they preferred that over the movie itself. Okay. Uh, so maybe I'll give that a watch one day. I should have watched it, but you know, don't I don't have that much time, man. I know. You know um, time I, is a, yeah. a, fa a face of the water or something like that. In, in my mind, another good companion piece to that movie would actually be the Roger Corman movie, A Bucket of Blood. Uh, strangely enough, oh, yeah. there's just something like, like that movie's like got like sort of like I think it's like set a few years earlier, but it's sort of like that beatnik culture and like the mm -hmm. idea of these clubs that like are just like burnt out bars at that in that period of time and right. where people were gathering. Um, that's basically what Bucket and Blood set in, but uh, with uh, Dick Miller and uh, him killing people pretending to be a sculptor, and <laughs> it's very like yeah, totally it's kind of in the same world. Yeah. yeah, I can get down on that. I like some Dick Miller. I mean, who doesn't like Dick Miller? So, so what was the dark side of your viewing then? Oh, uh, so I watched a recent uh, comedic effort. Uh, I think it came out maybe this year, uh, maybe last year. I don't. I couldn't even tell you. Uh, but it was called um, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates. I think is what the name was. I've it's never like, heard of that. It's got like Adam Devine from Workaholics, Zac Efron, and Anna Kendrick, and uh, Aubrey Plaza. So, if this is like what mainstream comedies are going to come to, I th I think the entire industry is just going to fall down. Like, I don't, I don't know. It's weird. Like, so I laughed a couple times, but I think like as a as a movie as a whole, it wasn't even like serviceable as like warranting a watch by anyone. Like. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Um, What's the plot? Like, I I honestly don't know anything about this movie. Okay. So, you know, like Adam Devine? Nope. And uh, 
from Workaholics? Nope. <laughs> you ever seen Workaholics? No? No. Okay, well, that, uh, that's actually why I watched it, because uh, he's in Workaholics, and that show is really good. But okay. So it's him and Zac Efron, and uh, their parents and sister and her sister's fiance come to them, and uh, you get the impression that they're big-time party animals. And uh, they say the parents say how the sister's getting married, and they've had enough of the two sons' shenanigans. And uh, they want, for the wedding, they want the sons to bring dates because if they have dates, they'll be a little bit more in line or, I don't know, just not hooligans. So uh, what the boys do is they put out um, a Craigslist ad and then it gets a bunch of attention and they go on, uh, they go on like talk shows and stuff like that and they talk about how they want to find like nice girls. And then you cut to Anna Kendrick and Aubrey Plaza and they're like, uh, it shows them doing equally um, crazy drunken shenanigans and stuff like that. Uh, and then it shows them j- getting fired. And then they see the guys on the talk show and uh, they're like, oh, if we go on this date, it's like an all-inclusive trip to Hawaii if you can be dates. So they reply to the ad um, under the guise of being – or they don't reply to the ad, but they meet up with the guys under the guise of being nice girls, but they're actually not. So they all go to this like destination wedding in Hawaii and uh, the two boys are trying to be good, but then the girls are kind of bad. But even that's not really like so. So that's kind of the premise of the movie, right? Like they go to a destination wedding and then hilarity ensues is I think what the idea was. But like I think the big problem I had is like there's no consistency with like anything like they <sighs> they, they set it up that like. And like the two girls are like really big partiers, but then it shows them like not really being partiers like they're fine. But then it shows them like being partiers again. Like it's like so back and forth on stuff. And they Mm. they set up a lot of things that like don't pay like have any payout. Like the dad pulls like Zac Efron aside and he's like, we had to do this for your brother. He's like, we trust you, but we don't really trust him. And then later they get into some trouble. And then the dad's like, uh, he's like, he's like, I was wrong to not lump you together to begin with and you think that like that coming out would have been like a secret that the brother kept towards the other brother and there would have been like tension or something but it's like never addressed again like Mm. it doesn't matter um and i think that's what like nothing in this movie like matters like the the sister gets hit in the face with like uh an atv tire and her face is all like bumbled up like the day before the wedding but then the next day it's like fine (laughs) <laughs> so uh, I don't know it's just I, I don't know how to describe it like there were a few times I laughed but I think it was mostly like Adam Devine stuff like it seems like he was allowed to improv a little bit but or like fart jokes because that's always funny mm-hmm. but um, I don't know like if you if you didn't know any if I just told you like that premise and I gave you 10 minutes to like write a script I bet you could do the same as like what they did like it's very like it's like uh, they go under uh without like hidden inten- intentions and then they end up liking each other and they have to solve a problem and now they're everything's happy like you know what i mean yeah <laughs> I, I don't know like i'm giving uh, this movie too much time or yeah like fuck this deserves. fuck it fuck it i'm i'm just saying like um, i don't know i, just, I, I guess I'll, I, I was just looking at the director's other stuff and i guess he directed that seven days in hell um weird like HBO documentary mockumentary special uh with Andy Sandberg. Oh the the tennis one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same and director. Like Harrington or John yes. Snow is in it too. That's right. 
yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he also did that thing. And then uh, that uh, was it, John Mulaney, uh, yep. new in town, same same uh, director or whatever. Is yeah, those. but th- and, that like that stand up's a little different. Like sure, yeah. I, well, well, we'll be talking about a, a stand up director actually when we get to Mike creeping. Rob Zombie. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Okay. Well, yeah. uh, that's well, all I watched. One good and uh, one one skip. I would. I would say. All right then. Um, yeah. So for my creeping, I finished uh, the Hellraiser movies off. I oh, watched yeah. Hellraiser uh, Revelations, and uh, that movie was terrible. But mm-hmm. the worst film of the Hellraiser franchise, like I'm, I'm talking about this, like it's a prize, and yep. that would be Hellworld, the uh, eighth film. Mm-hmm. Um, that that movie is just so fucking bad. And Hellraiser Revelations is, it's bad, but it's just like it's kind of forgettably bad. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess like Hellworld is just like insultingly bad. Uh-huh. If we, if we want to distinguish between badness, um, and like yeah. rot, like yeah, if we want to talk about rotten eggs of creepingness, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I don't know. One, one's a rotten egg, and one's yeah. the the half embryo that yeah. you should have never opened to yeah. begin with. I mean, that's Hellworld. I mean, I set out. I mean, kind of knowing that the Hellraiser franchise watch through would be kind of like disappointing in the end. Um, I'm glad I did it, but at the same time, it was really disappointing. <laughs> I'm glad you did it too, because now, um, now I know which ones are really bad. And just, just, just watch the first two. Yep. Um, yeah, and then like maybe the fourth one, maybe the third one. I, that's about it. Don't go any further. Okay. Um, yeah, there's nothing really worth talking about after that. But um, yeah, the other one big thing that I guess I've been doing the last couple weeks is I've been revisiting Rob Zombie's movies because. Oh. Uh, I I don't know. You I mean I talked about this in the past. Horror fans are like some of them are just pieces of shit. And mm-hmm. there's one thing that internet horror fans hate and like to talk about their what they hate. They love talking about Rob Zombie and how much they hate him. Like anytime there's a Rob Zombie story online, somebody mm-hmm. has to start saying, "Oh man, I hate that guy." And then they start talking about Sherry Moon Zombie <laughs> and talking about how she's got no ass because mm-hmm. th- that's relevant. And um, they just go on and on. Um, but I mean, I've never really had any ill will toward, uh, Rob Zombie. Um, mm-hmm. I dug Hailbilly Deluxe back in the day. Um, right. and then, I mean, I watched House of a Thousand Corpses because, um, my, uh, brother-in-law, brother-in-law at the time, he was like kind of talking it up saying, yeah, it's really, really good. And then mm-hmm. I watched it and, uh, it was, it's not good. <laughs> um, right. and that was kind of my, like my experience of Rob Zombie at that point. And then I remember the Devil's Rejects came out and, I thought it was like a lot better uh, of a movie than House of a Thousand Corpses, but mm-hmm. it wasn't like this amazing revelation of horror. Um, but then I watched uh, the first Halloween remake that he did. And at the time, like, everyone just was prepared to write that movie off and hate on that. And I actually mm-hmm. liked that movie a lot, <laughs> surprisingly. And, uh, yeah, that is surprising. Yeah, I, I thought it was like pretty good um, mm-hmm. for very specific reasons. Uh, then I watched the second movie, the second Halloween, and mm-hmm. I didn't like that at all, really. Like, or right. There's parts of it that it could have been really excellent, but then there's like all this other stuff that he wants to do that just kind of sabotages the whole thing. And then right. like most recently... I guess I watched uh, uh, Lords of Salem, which I thought was not bad. Uh, but mm-hmm. again, people hate, hate, hate. Um, and then 31, it's like it's the same thing. It's happening again. People are hating on it. Um, yeah. I don't really have any expectations uh, about it just because it's like it's a Kickstarter movie, which means mm-hmm. that it's going to be it's going to look it. And but I will watch it whenever it becomes <laughs> available to me. Um, but that have all... you heard like how he came up with the idea for that movie. 
Um, I, I imagine he didn't have to try very hard. Uh, I think <laughs> he was like on set somewhere, and he's like, I can come up with an idea. It's like clowns at an amusement park torturing people. And then that was it. And then he went to Kickstarter. <laughs> so that that's like like he's on record. He's like he's like I just came up with it in like a minute. And it's like and then we went and filmed it. There you go. That's, Sorry. Anyway, that, I, I cut you off. <laughs> that sounds about right. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I re I rewatched Rob Zombie's movies. Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses still not very good. Uh, it's kind of funny watching it because it's like oh hey there's Rain Wilson, uh, pre oh, yeah. The Office, and. Um, I don't know. That movie, it seems like he really, really likes Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 a lot. And uh, he, he like, kind of makes the movie look that way. But that movie, I'm not sure if it's, like, the editor on it was really bad or the editor was left with the job of making uh, a movie out of how Rob Zombie shot a movie for the first time not knowing what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, I think it could be both of those. Because, like, I, th- I found the editing and stuff in that movie and a lot of the decisions in that regard were terrible. Uh, and it just keeps it from being, like, ever really that good. Um, and then, like, I mean, the only reason you really would watch it, I guess, is just to be introduced to the characters in The Devil's Rejects later on. Because The Devil's Rejects basically drops you back into that story universe. But it's just a way better made movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, yeah, like you, it's it's actually amazing the light years of quality between House of a Thousand Corpses to Devil's Rejects. Like his sense yeah. of just like building scenes up and making things actually just come off as like legit, like as a legitimate movie. Like the cinematography's there, the sense of like threat uh, in like a lot of the scenes are it's actually present, whereas it wasn't there at all in his first one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's like bits in that movie that are also in Devil's Rejects that are like people don't always forget about them, but like there's bits where it's like this is boring, like this is just like padded out stuff. Like it's yeah. almost like. Um, it's sort of the, the whole like Empire Strikes Back mentality that people have when they make these kind of sequels in these sort of imagined trilogies, which this isn't, mm-hmm. but it has like those kind of these down characters and like I already like these down moments with these characters that like aren't going to pay off or amount to anything. Right. Um, and there's also uh, some really terrible CGI fire uh, that appears mm-hmm. in sort of like the last act of it. Um, but I, I dig uh, Rob Zombie's uh, use of classic hard rock music uh, used in Devil's Rejects as well as in uh, Halloween. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm a fan of that. Um, and then, yeah, I rewatched Halloween 1, which like, I'm, always, I'm still amazed at how many people just hate that thing. Because I mm-hmm. think it's actually like one of the best Halloween uh, sequels, if you want to call it that. Um, after 1, 2, 3? Yeah, after one, two, three, definitely one, and then two, and then four, five, six, um, and I, I haven't watched H two O or Resurrection uh, mm-hmm. since they came out in theater, so I can't make a statement about those. But I don't think they're going to be that good either. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I think like uh, Halloween one, uh, up until like probably it's like the final act. I think that movie is super great. Um, people mm-hmm. always complain about the. Uh, young Michael Myers stuff, but it's like, t- I think it's actually really good. And uh, yeah. I, I find that's like a good sign when I'm watching a movie and when the first impulse to like check how much time's left in a movie comes and I realized the first time I've looked and it's been like an hour and a half. Yeah. That's usually a really mm-hmm. good sign that your it's movie's like, feeling. yeah, it's like, wow, that's like, wow, this movie's just moving along. And it's like very rare that that happens for me. Um, mm-hmm. Like, 
I mean, I'm, I'm, this will sound nuts, but like uh, two times that that's happened uh, was when I was watching Jaws and The Exorcist. Now, oh, yeah. I'm yeah. not saying uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween is like The Exorcist or Jaws, but mm-hmm. um, it's like super slick. I mean, the, again, like the light years between his like uh, filmmaking skills from Devil's Rejects to Halloween is just as much as like House of a Thousand Corpses to Devil's Rejects. Um, right. There's like, I mean, um, it's kind of weird, like, because there's like, I mean, Halloween remake is there's some problems um i i I mean i love the original halloween movie um Mm -hmm. i think everyone does and like so i nothing in this like really made me uh like say why did they change this why is it like that like mm-hmm. it seems like actually the times when he's like beholden to the original movie is kind of when it feels fake um and then but then like he kind of it's almost like an intentional choice. Like I kind of talk, I guess I'll uh, talk about it a little bit more in depth. So there's a bit where the whole scene where, um, uh, the guy and girl just had sex and then guy goes to get the girl a beer and he's wearing like, or he's going to wear like the bed sheet to make him look, make himself look like a ghost. And then when he goes downstairs or whatever, Michael Myers sort of intervenes and like stabs him through with the chest, um, as he's like held up against the wall. And then you get the head, the head turn as he's observes mm-hmm. his own handiwork. However, people frame that. Well, so he does all that exactly the way it is in the original movie, except that it's like upstairs and it's shot differently. It's not the exact same, but that whole sequence Mm -hmm. is still there. And that's sort of like kind of this idea of like Michael Myers is sort of this like kind of almost playful stalker slasher who's like hunting Mm -hmm. his like who's like kind of stalking and playing with his prey. And it's more of like a thing of like building tension for the audience, not knowing when he's going to come. Um, But then he abandons that in the afterwards because uh there's the scene where like uh Lori Strode she um she just like leaves her parents to go babysitting and like mm-hmm. you just imagine it's like oh here's the scene with, with the parents and they're just going to uh say bye but no they go inside and just as they're about to close the door Michael Myers just barges into their house and he just, just murders them dead like he just proceeds to just like kill them without provocation he just they're dead now and it's like it's hmm. so like like that and like there's no way because there's no scene like that at all in the original movie so it kind of like it makes the shift of like i think rob, rob zombie was kind of setting up like well here's what you guys want in mm-hmm. the original what you come to expect from the original movie but in my world um and this is kind of like what resonates with me with that movie and way it's uh kind of successful because it, it makes me think about this is this whole idea of like the rule of law of um like civility and like the idea of like law enforcement or police that they're going to help you when a maniac who's seven feet tall super strong and has a kitchen knife means to do you harm there's nothing mm-hmm. you can do about it they're just he's just going to end your life and that's going to be it and that's sort of like when I watched the first movie, that was like a thing I t- uh, it was a kind of a takeaway. And I mean, mm-hmm. uh, when that movie came out, uh, it kind of like was during the um, that cycle of like 2000s American movies that I think like I've seen referred to as like the splat pack. So you had kind of like the Eli Roth movies like uh, Cabin yeah. Fever, Hostel 1 and 2. You had the Saw movies. Uh, you had like Neil Marshall's stuff that was coming. Um, mm-hmm. And like these movies like all had like black red in like dirty brown canvas movie posters like i'd even put mel gibson's like uh like passion of the christ and apocalypto into that like marketing vibe yeah. and like these like violent gore flicks um and mm-hmm. i mean it's all this sort of like i mean uh an academic might say it's like kind of the uh, like post 9-11 sort of response it's like the horror became a lot darker and like mm-hmm. more uh more um 
more than uh, audiences wanted to handle, or at least film critics wanted to handle, because it seems like yeah. movie, movie audiences loved this stuff, and the only people who complained about it were movie critics. And then people just got sick of it. Like, audiences always grow sick of every fad, be it found footage or uh, kind of the, the post-scream <laughs> slasher stuff. People just, like, they're into it, and then they say, oh, I've never, I was never interested in that. I want to move past it. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know if that ever really got, that point ever came with like sort of the uh, splat pack slash uh, torture porn genre. But I think like Halloween really, I think, hit upon that idea of like sort of like barbarians at the gate. This idea of just like pure savagery of like someone that wants to kill you and like the like if they're, they're going to set out to do that and they're going to be successful. And like our systems, our institutions aren't going to be able to help us. And it kind of mm-hmm. taps into that primal fear of like being able to like do something about it. And I think that's kind of like set up sort of this like weird like um, – like survivalism that people have now, like, like the success of like television shows, like about like, uh, like Bear Grylls TV shows and like all these other like survivalist shows that exist in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's like these ideas of like, people are like, well, the government and the institutions have failed me and they can, they're not going to protect me at the end of the day. That's why I need to own guns and I should be able to uh, cure my own food in the woods. And it's kind of like gross from that. Um, and I don't know if it's really been fully embraced in horror movies too much, but I mean, like even in like your next, like the, the final girl, she was trained by a survivalist father and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's like weird traces of that, I think in there. And I mean, like the whole like walking dead television show, I think points to the, that, that shift from like the, um, like you're on your own and you have to be able to do what it takes to survive. Um, but so yeah, hell, um, Halloween, I think it's actually a pretty good movie. It's I think it's his best movie. It's like I'd say it's like kind of tough between Devil's Rejects and Halloween to decide which one's better. Um, it really comes down to I think preference. Um, mm-hmm. And then so Halloween two, um, it's like it's got it's kind of amped up the like sheer savage violence of Michael Myers. Like there are scenes mm-hmm. in that are just like still jaw dropping. Like how brutal michael myers is um i mm-hmm. think i described it as like he is like a world champion heavyweight boxer and his boxing gloves have been replaced with a kitchen knife and uh, he just he just thrashes and mutilates people just br- like awfully like it's he's unstoppable yeah. and um yeah it's just him traveling around Ugh. so like the weird thing of the movie though is like and then I guess Rob Zombie had the idea like it's going he's going to turn this into an art house david lynch infused Art, mm. art horror movie and it just it looks terrible <laughs> I, it doesn't it, sound good it doesn't work at all like there's these moments like anything like michael myers just like fucking ending people's lives are amazing like there's a scene where he, he caves a man's head in with his boot and it's like mm-hmm. whoa and there's another scene where he like puts a like the stripper's head in through this glass like mm-hmm. over and over and over again and it's, it's just like sick <laughs> mm-hmm. um but then there's this like whole backdrop of like, uh, misguided like Sherry Moon zombie who plays his mother in the first movie and then she killed herself. But now she's mm-hmm. like this like kind of like angel figure that like he sees and she's trying to like bring about sort of like the end of his life. But like the whole the end of the whole family and um so and like Laurie Strode she's like kind of like suffering from like being like this like survival syndrome kind of thing. And so she's like yeah. so she's of course like she's turned to listening to Alice Cooper and having dirty smelly Rob <laughs> Zombie dreadlock. 
sucks. And oh. it's it's like, I don't know. Rob Zombie has a worldview of like what what is cool to him. And he thinks everyone else mm-hmm. shares that. And he keeps doing it over and over and over again. That's like in Lords of Salem too. Like Sherry Moon Zombie is like, she's like plays a Rob Zombie character. And I mean, it makes sense, right? It's Rob Zombie movies. But uh, I mean, it's sort of like his world is just like more like gritty and kind of silly and kind of like you can point to real world like people who are into that stuff whereas like with Wes Anderson Wes Anderson does the exact same thing but I guess like there's a more of an audience for the world that he presents because you can't really point to like oh there's like Wes Anderson characters who walk around in the real world there isn't Mm -hmm. and it it, or people would want to be like that whereas like the people who are like that in the Rob Zombie world they're just like yeah I like Rob Zombie movies (laughs) I don't know exactly I don't know. I mean, it makes me a dick to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, two. I mean, I know some people who like think that movie is like uh, like a, a modern horror classic, or it's, it's like his best movie. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I don't know. It's just it's too poorly shot. And uh, I mean, Brad Dourif's amazing in that movie. He he gets like God's one of the favorite son. Yes, Brad Dourif gets like one of the best scenes in that uh, movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Like real, like oh man, I didn't expect that sort of emotional response it out of a Rob Zombie movie. Um, other than like sheer like yeah yeah stab him to death <laughs> yeah um well that's what brad Dourif does that's that's why i will have to one day watch those movies as well for my brad Dourif uh collection yeah, yeah i mean he's barely in the first movie um mm-hmm. oh i guess yeah and then there's malcolm mcdowell <laughs> in the oh. first and second one um he's got quite the mustache uh, in that second movie um he's okay. yeah he's just sort of in them he's doing like the donald pleasance um uh, yeah. doctor thing but oh, Loomis. Uh, Loomis yeah uh, thank you yeah. Um, and he's just I don't know it's like a different take on it but it's kind of uh, cartoonish which is like kind mm-hmm. of how Rob Zombie seems to always handle f- experts in his movies because in Devil's Rejects there's like a uh, like film expert that shows up in it in the midst of this like uh, bloodbath disgusting movie and it's just like this bit about Groucho Marx that <laughs> it like it makes sense in the movie but like even like uh, I think like Roger Ebert's review of Devil Rejects who's like actually it's a movie that Roger Ebert actually liked even though he warned people off of it and he usually hates stuff like this but like he was like talking about that scene and I'm like well I guess he's a film critic too but <laughs> but yeah. it's like I don't know Rob Zombie and experts it's sort of like bizarre his idea of what that means um and then uh i started to watch his animated movie he made with uh john papa uh the uh, the haunting world of el super bisto um okay uh yeah he made an animated movie i guess but i watched about mm, five minutes and mm-hmm. it's horrible it, it doesn't it's just like it's bad chauvinistic sexist dude jokes um, yeah. for just, and it's just like, uh, like, oh, here's, um, uh, cause like the idea is like El Super Bisto, he's like a luchador mask wearing like pervert who just wants to have sex with ladies. So he's making a film, but it's actually a porno and he's doing a casting thing. And so like all these like famous actresses are drawn playing like people and auditioning for this movie. It's like, oh, look, it's Barbara Streisand. Oh, it's Meryl Streep. All these broads mm-hmm. who take themselves seriously. But then here's like fun bags chick. Aren't, oh, isn't that funny? And it's just like, ugh. And like, there's no way I'm going to watch this. And I did not. So, uh, thumbs down. That's my rotten egg. (laughs) Oh, that sounds really bad. That's all you watched for Rob Zombie? Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't get to Lords of Salem because I just watched that not that long ago. Um, And then I haven't watched 31 yet. You're also forgetting the uh, stand-up 
or the one thing he directed, the uh, family-friendly stand-up yes. from friend of Jerry Seinfeld, Tom Papa. Oh, sorry, I said John Papa, just Tom yeah. Papa. That's right. Oh, so he was also involved in this animated thing. Yeah, that's sorry. That's when I said John Papa. I meant Tom Papa. Yeah, yeah. I find that really bizarre because I actually have seen that uh, Tom Papa thing. I think that's the only Rob Zombie movie I've actually seen is the the Tom Papa stand-up. Um, and I find it weird that they're friends because, as I said, his his stand-up was very like family-friendly, like. I don't know. It's very like tame, like not bad or anything. Like it was pretty good, but yeah. he's just not like I don't know. I don't know. I don't picture them being friends, is what I'm saying. <laughs> but uh, and so well, I, I don't know. I, I guess I guess I mean I, I don't even know what uh, Tom Papa looks like, but I imagine them sitting in the back uh, on the patio deck, uh, listening to skateboard kids uh, in the <laughs> in a nearby yes. park, and uh, old man zombie getting all mad. <laughs> Yeah, okay, that makes sense. No. Um, but yeah, I uh so like I said, I've never seen any of those movies. Um, I will one day watch the Halloweens just for Brad Dourif, but uh I've always felt like Rob Zombie's movies looked so like dirty to me, mm-hmm. like grimy. Yeah. Yes. I was like, I don't want to watch that. And uh <laughs> my um my suspicion of that was confirmed last year. Uh I was in Chicago for a a work conference and they had a, a Rob Zombie a haunted house at your work conference was, uh no in chicago okay. <laughs> uh yeah the work conference was the haunted house uh <laughs> that's I, I deal pretty, in that's ghosts. Pretty, that's, yeah for for your prison job yeah for my prison job yeah well you know prison guards all and prisoners i guess love rob zombie yeah especially um, the cupcake stealers fucking cupcake stealers yeah uh <laughs> but um what was i gonna say yeah the haunted house like i went to it and it was like so there was like three three portions of it, and it was like two of them were about his movies, like based on his movies, and then the third one was what the one character's like the inside of his mind was like, and like I was walking through it, and like other than like loud noises or like people jumping, it's not scary at all. It's just very like upsetting. I don't know because all it was was like super super morbidly obese women being like fed food and yelling at you to like feed them uh like (laughs) guys beating up women like in front of you (laughs) as part of the show and then like crippled people running around trying to scare you like emphasizing that they're crippled yeah and like that that was the whole thing and it took like 45 minutes to walk through and like 10 minutes in i was just like oh my god i was like like, why am i here Um, (laughs) just like audiences that Rob Zombie th- movies. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But I got a pretty cool shirt out of it that was like, um, it was like a Grim Reaper skeleton at like a drive-in theater. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I, I remember last year before I went, I was like, oh, maybe I should watch them, uh, some of them Rob Zombie films. Uh, and then I went there and I was like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> so yeah, I think I remember you telling me there was like a, a fat guy in a bathtub, and he was like, wave, oh, yeah. he was waving people toward him. Self, yeah, yeah. See, that's what I mean. Like, ha- like a third of it was just like really like not healthy, like obese people, and they were either like doing gross stuff or asking you to do gross stuff. Like mm-hmm. it was, I don't know, man. Like it was weird. Yeah. So I get, I guess that's like I just took it as like I guess that's what all his movies are like. Then yeah, yeah, domestic well. violence, obese people, and cripples. Yeah, that that's about sums. Sometimes for all, that about sums her up. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, I think it's time to talk about some gripes and news. Uh-oh. Oh. Um, yeah, I guess like my one one thing I'm going to throw out there for as far as uh, Blu-ray releases is that uh, it was announced mm-hmm. that uh, we North America will be seeing Creepshow two, and I just Ooh. thought I would mention that because it's a thing that has creep in the title, like us, and Absolutely. it's but that's but it's a movie and we're a podcast and that's that's it. Yeah, that sounds good. I like uh, Creepshow. Yeah, I like Stephen. Have you seen Creepshow two? No, I've only seen the first Creep Show, but I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, I like uh, the Leslie Nielsen one. Yeah. That one was really good. I think like pretty well. Like the the opinion on Creep Show Two is that it's worth watching for one particular short story. Uh, that's the Raft. Um, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, that one's like that one's pretty effective. Um, well, I'll be picking this up just to watch that. Yeah, because I've wanted to watch two and three. They're just it seems like they're hard done by to find copies of. Uh, like good copies. Yeah. I Maybe yeah. I haven't really looked. I think it's out there. Maybe it went out of print. I'm not sure. I know I've got, I've got the first creep show like on an old clip case DVD. I think it's like in need of some like love and care. There was like a making of documentary that just got released here. Uh, I think from Synapse called Just Desserts. And it's like a feature length documentary on the making of creep show, which I, it sounds interesting. Um, I'm not like, I don't remember like loving creep show a bunch. I mean, it's uh, George Romero, who's one of my mm-hmm. boys. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would probably just watch my DVD of it. I mean, unless it's a huge substantial upgrade whenever that Blu-ray comes out. Cause I think it maybe it was like one of those Warner brothers archives editions or something like that. Mm-hmm. Cause it's out of print, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, tender love and care is definitely needed there. And then, yeah, I mean like they are putting out the Blu-rays on of, of it and Salem's lot and uh, mm-hmm. cat's eye, um, so which is just maybe, well, like we've been talking about this because like, I feel like there is a, uh, the not, time is now for like nineties nostalgia and nothing says nineties nostalgia more to me than Stephen King. Uh, yeah. Cause that seemed to be like when, uh, when I was a kid, like it, Stephen King was all over, even though like his heyday probably had already kind of passed as far as like really big movies. Like that was kind of like mm-hmm. the downturn, but um, yeah, I mean, like everyone was reading those Stephen King books. I mean, I don't think people ever stopped, but it's, it definitely, I think, has cooled off maybe in the last decade. But I think it's starting mm-hmm. to heat up because I was at a grocery store like a couple months ago. And I remember like at the checkout mm-hmm. looking over and seeing a copy of Cujo. Um, I'm yep. like, well, of all the books that you could possibly have in here, you have here like a 30-year-old book. And mm-hmm. uh, interestingly enough, my girlfriend right now is listening to the audiobook of Cujo. Ooh, that is interesting. And she is liking it a lot. I don't know if she's read a lot oh. of Stephen King or listened to a lot of Stephen King, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've never read the book either. I mean, I think everyone knows the story of Stephen King's uh, memories of writing mm-hmm. Cujo, which are none um, due to right. uh, substance abuse. <laughs> that's that's my favorite story ever. <laughs> where it's like, yeah, if anyone's not familiar with that, where when he was like uh, an alcoholic and heavy into the cocaine. Uh, one day he like woke up and there was just a finished copy of Cujo on his like dresser and he was like huh <laughs> he's like I don't remember writing this and so he just sent it to his editor he's like I guess I wrote a book I don't know <laughs> I fucking love that it's amazing yeah um, I think that's, I, I, I think he always clarifies though too because I think that was like in is that on writing that he talks about that yeah, he yeah. talks about it. I right. think he's like, yeah, it's not like a dig on the book. I think it's a pretty good book. I think it's actually not bad. But he just says that like that was like how bad it was for him during that period of time that like he mm-hmm. doesn't remember writing a book. Yeah. Which yeah. like that's tough to imagine. But I mean like who knows? I mean with our substance abuse problems, we might not remember uh, recording any of our podcasts like 10 years from now. 
I don't even remember what we did 10 minutes ago. <sighs> yeah. Uh, oh, baby. Um, I, I Just really quick, I want to add, I think the reason... I think you're right that uh, he cooled off for a while, but I think the reason it's on back on the upswing was because uh, he came out with um, uh, 11.22.63, which was like fucking fantastic. That's one of his best books in years, and I think it really resonated with people and kind of brought about like a resurgence in his old stuff. So if I had to guess, I'd say that's what it is maybe. So I'm a big Stevie fan. I just actually I just started reading it. I didn't mention that in the creeping. That was re- that's really good. Yeah, um, that's that's a book that I don't know if I ever finished it because I start, I tried reading that when I was probably way too young, like twelve mm-hmm. or thirteen, and it was just it's a big book. It's a big, thick, fat motherfucker of a book. Um, yeah, it's like twelve hundred pages or something, and uh, I I just I want to start it like now. Cause I'm hoping that I can read it through now and October as mm-hmm. like a, a, a creep for uh, not her reading, reading creep. But uh, I like it so far. I think it's really well written. And one of his, like, I guess everybody knows it's one of his most infamous books. So most popular. It's good. It's good. It's good. Oh, Hey, so speaking of Blu-rays, did you hear uh, that they're going to release a, a black and Chrome edition of a future criterion collection film uh fury road uh i knew they were talking about it for a while um they got a date now uh december 6th mm, you know i like that but i kind of wish they had made that decision when the first blu-ray came out (laughs) but that seems to be are gonna buy it again yeah we'll see i mean I don't know. I'll wait and see the reviews for it and make sure that it's not like a situation where it's like, well, I could just turn the settings on my television down to desaturate it and experience it the exact same way. I mean, like I'm sure they'll put a little bit more uh, spit and polish on that to make it a little, look mm-hmm. a little better than that. But because it's like that's sort of like the same thing with The Mist, right? Speaking of Stephen King, um, where there's yeah. this, they did the same thing where there's like there's the color version, but I guess uh, Frank Darabont always wanted it to be black and white. So um, I guess like the way to actually really watch that movie is the black and white version, which is on mm-hmm. which I think did come out on the special edition of it when it first came out and not after the fact. Damn you, Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I can't confirm or deny your your statement there. So, so what do you have for uh, us, the listeners? I got some stuff for you, man. Um, it's topical, it's tasty, and it's doing well with the kids. Uh, I don't know if any of that's true, but it is topical. So um, coinciding with uh, the 20th anniversary of the death of Tupac Shakur a couple days ago, uh, there was a few things that got announced, and I don't know if you know this, Jarrett, but I'm a pretty big Tupac fan. I and I, I I mean that sincerely. I I do. Uh, I used to rep that stuff pretty hard back in my my youth, as you can tell. Um, was that I'm when pretty, you were throwing around the pigskin? Uh, yeah, yeah. Back in uh, my football rugby days, and mm-hmm. uh, just my my childhood with my fancy rhinestone. I had a Tupac belt buckle that could detach, and it was a lighter. So, um, I was the envy of everyone in high school and junior high. Uh, huh, what I, was I even talking about? Oh, so, so. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there, there was actually two, um, 
two re- uh, not related but related through Tupac, uh, I guess news. Um, there was a trailer that came out for All Eyes on Me, which is a Tupac biopic. And I don't know if you know anything about this, but it's like been long kind of gestating. Like uh, this company bought the rights for it like a really or a really long time ago. And uh, at one point, like Anton Fuqua was going to direct it, and there was like a pretty big screenwriter on it. And I think the people who were going to do it went on to make Straight Out of Compton, which I haven't seen, but yeah. I heard was pretty good. So I think it's kind of a, a missed opportunity, and too bad for Tupac because they could have used uh, some good filmmakers behind it. Um, the guy they got it doing now, like I don't know if it will be good or not. The guy doing it now is—he's not. I don't think he's ever directed a movie, but he directs music videos. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even tell you his name, but anyway, so this this movie, uh, the trailer came out, and uh, so the reason I'm talking about it is because it's like long talked about because they owned the rights, and then uh, there was like a something in a contact contract stipulation where Athene uh, Shakur, his mom, like Tupac's mom, had like a say in who was how the movie was made and stuff. And then at one point, the company sued her for rights, and then she sued them back. And it was like a whole big thing. But like, she died like a month ago. So I guess this movie just got like (laughs) they moved right in. Yeah. So like, I remember that's that's not creepy. That's ghoulish. (laughs) That's ghoulish, man. So like, I remember um, hearing about that, uh, like her passing a while ago. And then like this trailer came out like yesterday or something. I was like, Jesus. Um, so there's not much to say about it. Uh, I guess it had like a $45 million budget. So it's there. Um, there's money into it. Um, the guy playing Tupac, his name is Demetrius Ship Jr. And uh, he kind of looks like him and he oh. kind of sounds like him. But like, you know, like Uncanny Valley stuff where it's like it kind of looks human, but it's not like right there. And that's why it's like creepy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, that's kind of what he looks like. Like he kind of looks like him, but his head's kind of too big. He's got that uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. thing with the, uh, um, you know who I'm talking about, with OJ Simpson. O- 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 like his, yeah, where uh, Cuba's head's not big enough. This yeah. guy's head's too big. Uh-oh. Um, so, anyways, uh, I'm um, the reason I bring it up is because I'm a pretty big fan, and I there's never been really a movie on him other than uh, Biggie and Tupac which is like a documentary about kind of the conspiracy controversy around their two, their deaths. Yeah. And so I would say watch that, which brings me directly uh, a nice transition into my next news. This was announced like last week. Uh, there's going to be a movie. I don't even remember what it's called, but uh, it's going to star Johnny Depp. And it's going to be about him playing the detective investigating the Tupac and Biggie Smalls murders. Oh, so I I just thought that was really funny. I was like, Johnny Depp. I was like, what the fuck? Because um, this is another another case where it's like, yeah, I'd watch a movie like that. Um, but I would rather just watch a documentary style like the Biggie and Tupac one um, other than like a Johnny Depp one because uh, he hasn't made a good movie in like 20 years. So I'm sure that would be very good. Uh, what, um, about, what about Tusk? Oh... <laughs> yeah, uh, good job, guys. Yeah. Um, um, well, speaking of uh, ghoulish uh, biopics, um, I, in the last like week or so, I, I believe that there was a, I guess a, uh, well, I don't know if RJ, if you're familiar with the career in life and times of WWE superstar Chris Benoit. I am actually Canadian yeah. boy. 
Yeah, Canadian boy who uh, uh, infamously uh, went on to uh, win WWE titles and then uh, murder his wife and child and then killed himself. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, about nine years ago, ten years ago, whatever it was. Anyways, so there's there's been a biopic that's like kind of been floating around for years about like his story. Um, right. It's called Crossface. <laughs> which is Whoa. the name of his finishing move um, that he employed. Oh. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. So apparently uh, the the director of Punisher Warzone, Lexi Alexander, uh, mm-hmm. she she is apparently going to be directing this film now. It's like it, it won't die. Um, it, it just keeps coming back, and we're, I guess we'll see now if uh, – if it sticks, I mean, this is the sort of like material that like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the director, Uli Lomel. Um, he's this mm-hmm. like, uh, so he's this German, uh, director who kind of like under the tutelage of, uh, Fassbender, um, Fassbinder, Ra- yeah. Fassbinder. R- Rain Fassbinder, um, uh, he like made like a couple of interesting movies way back when he was an actor. Um, he directed a really good movie called Tenderness of the Wolves. Uh, but then he like came to America and he made uh, the Boogeyman. And then like mm-hmm. kind of from that point forward, he became sort of like the schlock master, like shot on video guy who like whenever there was like uh, a knockoff to be made about a movie that was coming out, he'd be the kind of guy. And it's always true crime stuff. But mm-hmm. so like he made like some Zodiac killer movies like right around the same time that David Fincher's Zodiac came out. And then he became the go-to for like uh, like BTK movies. Like uh, so it's like, hey, there's this um, DC sniper case. Let's make a movie about that and get Ken Forey in it. Um, and it's just like that's kind of like what I assume that a Chris Benoit movie would resemble. Um, mm-hmm. and who knows, it might still wind up being like that, but, uh, yeah, there's like a morbid curiosity in me to like watch this being a fan mm-hmm. of like true crime and pro wrestling. Uh, yeah. but yeah, it's just like, there's so many factors working against it actually being any good or worth talking mm-hmm. about other than like, just like making people kind of go, that's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that sounds really bad. Yep. Um, I did like that Punisher Warzone though. People don't give that movie enough credit. Uh, when uh, that guy's parkouring and he gets mm-hmm. shot with like a fucking rocket. Oh, I'm familiar with that gif. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> I think I was maybe uh, one of ten people on Earth that actually liked that movie. So. Oh, that, that movie's got a whole new reputation though. Like it's beloved yeah. by like uh, action connoisseurs. Uh, oh, it, okay. it, 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 no, it definitely it has a second wind uh, after like because like no, I don't think anyone really cared about it when it came out, but I think. It's like it's it's got a re- positive reputation amongst like people who kind of like are really into action movies. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's um, better than all those other Marvel movies too. Yeah, so, so oh, there you go. Hey, let's just yeah. let's get past that. Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, any other things you'd like to address? No, not really. No, I just brought up that the Tupac news. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, like, also relevant to uh, our podcast. I mean, have you been following the stories of the creep catchers in uh, British Columbia? Uh, no, this sounds really scary, though. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, it's only scary for some people. Uh, so, this is uh, an article uh, Vancouver Sun, uh, former BC sheriffs, uh, be, sorry, here, former BC sheriff faces charges after another vigilante sting targeting online predators. 
So (laughs) a growing trend of vigilante stings has resulted in charges against a former deputy sheriff in British Columbia just days after a Mountie faced similar allegations. The BC Criminal Justice Branch announced Tuesday that Kevin Johnston, who worked in Kamloops, has been charged with three counts of communicating with an underage person for a sexual offense and one count of initiation to sexual touching. An unnamed RCMP officer in Surrey was arrested last week and is being investigated for child luring and child exploitation after the vigilante group Creep Catchers released video that it claimed was a confrontation with a man uh, who thought he was meeting an underage girl. Justice Branch spokesman Dan McLaughlin confirmed that both men came to the attention of police through separate vigilante groups. There are organizations that are out there providing opportunities for people to communicate with people they believe to be underage females in these instances, and they seem to have been caught by those organizations. None of the allegations against the two men has been proven in court. Uh, In the latest allegations, media reports said a group called Creep Hunters in Kelowna posted a video on Facebook that the group said showed a confrontation with Johnson after he allegedly tried to initiate a relationship with an underage girl. The group's website was taken down on Tuesday, but some of the video was still available and had been shared on Facebook. Um, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, hopefully these creep catchers and watchers uh, don't have the Criterion Creeps on their uh, radar. I don't think we've given them any reason to. Um, well, uh, now. Well, yeah, now. Now, now I, those, those damn hashtags. I, I, well, now they're going to see, they're going to search up creeps. They're going to find all those hot abs hashtags and you, you're going to lead them right to us, Jared. Um, now, I got to say, I admire your dedication to looking up all things creep. Yep. But I think this one's going to come back on us. We're going to be falsely accused of weird things and uh, it's all going to come crashing down well with that being said speaking of underage children i think it is time we tackle what brought us here to the dance bucko oh yeah okay how do you like that transition you didn't see it coming yeah it's smooth though well works folks after the break we're going to be talking about walkabout by directed by nicholas rogue from 1971 see you then
for civilized man. place, man is just another of God's creatures. You're right. What's up here? We can see where we are from the top. Well, where are we now? We've just got to climb that one. But you we said... We're lost, aren't we? No, of course not. You should try and help me. I'm tired too. Yamo Bangayan me, Panyar Panere. and the girl. 30,000 years apart, together. Walkabout. Just about the most different film you'll ever see. And we're back. And tonight we are talking about Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout. So first, a synopsis. Um, based on a novel called The Children, written by James Vance Marshall uh, from 1959. Um, 
the film walkabout mostly deviates it uh deviates from it uh beyond like it's about two white children in the australian outback uh and their uh, interactions with an aborigine boy um in the book, I guess it's two American children who survive a plane crash. And I guess like one of the thoughts why they would have changed that is because uh, of Lord of the Flies, which had come okay. out in 1963, which is actually a future Criterion film we'll be discussing. Um, so story-wise, uh, it's about a white teenage schoolgirl uh, played by Jenny Aguder and her little brother played by the son of the director, uh, Luke Rogue. Um, who survive uh, attempted murder, uh, kind of going back to Chris Benoit, uh, mm-hmm. uh, by their father uh, after he's driven the family out uh, to the Australian outback for a picnic uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, so he tries killing them, um, and he then turns the gun on himself after he fails to kill them and sets the car, their, uh, the family Volkswagen, on fire leaving uh brother and sister alone kind of to their own devices um the brother and sister uh proceed to make their way across the great outback looking for uh civilization uh a way to like lit like get out of there so they can go home i'm assuming um and because all they have at this point are uh what they brought with their picnic which is like a little little bit of water a little bit of food and that's really not going to last very long mm-hmm. um they are, their lips are getting drier and feet are getting swollen. The little brother is getting worse for wear. Um, but they do manage to come across a uh, kind of an oasis in this great uh, desert. Um, they think they can set up there for a little while. There's like water, there's some berries to eat. So they should all be good. But because it's the harsh, unforgiving elements, um, that, that water evaporates in the course of the morning and they're kind of left just like with the shade of a one single tree that now has far less leaves because they've fallen off and they're just going to lie there pretty well waiting for death to come or someone to come rescue them. Um, well, their savior comes in the form of a, uh, indigenous Aboriginal boy, uh, who is out on his walkabout. Uh, in case you didn't know, uh, the film, other than like the title is called Walkabout or don't know what Walkabout is, the film actually kind of tells you what that is uh, with an opening credits uh, kind of introduction to the concept, which is basically uh, it's a rite of passage that Indigenous male Australians take uh, from anywhere from age 10 to 16, where they live in the wilderness for up to a half a year or to a year uh, as a means to achieve spiritual and traditional transition to adulthood. Um, so the, there's obviously a lack of, uh, communication between the, um, co- colonial white kids and the, uh, Aboriginal kid, uh, since they don't speak one another's language. So those they can try to do is suss out what they're trying to say by making gestures and yelling, uh, loudly at one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Aboriginal boy, he's played by, uh, actor, uh, David Cole Golpillil, I think is how it would be said. Um, so he helps the two siblings survive in this hostile environment while he is on his own, uh, walkabout journey. Um, what those, what survival in this environment mean is the hunting and killing of a kangaroo and several hundred animals of various sizes. We get what essentially boils down to a various just sets of scenes, uh, of them kind of making their trek across the outback. They're not at some point, they just kind of don't even try to like find civilization anymore. They seem to be pretty content and happy living there just because, uh, um, the indigenous boy 
kind of can make that make it work for the three of them and they kind of get to live in this sort of idyllic sort of um uh state uh just wandering around uh from site to site and then like it's sort of like, like an elliptical pacing uh intercutting of just the time that they're there we have, we don't really ever get a sense of how long they've been there for um we get scenes of like a tribe of uh, indigenous people coming across the remnants of the burnt out Volkswagen and uh, they've taken the body of uh, murder dad uh, and put him in a tree. Um, we get a scene with a uh, Australian plantation that just like seems to hire indigenous people, uh, dye their hair blonde and have them make authentic uh, tourist trinkets that they then sell off. Um, we get a strange scene of a hot weather balloon station and some sex-starved field scientists. Uh, we get some sunbathing naked children. Uh, there's no shortage of flies and other uh, insects. Um, this idyllic life eventually comes to an end when the failure to communicate uh, and rejection collide and the darkness of this world befalls all. And you are left with questions of what the hell this was all about in the first place. Um I guess I'll mention that the screenwriter, uh, Edward Bond, he was a playwright who only worked on a handful of films, uh, such as Nicholas and Alexandra. He wrote some dialogue for uh, Antione's uh, Blow Up, and he uh, wrote an adaptation of Nabokov's Laughter in the Dark. Um, And then for the most part, he just went back into playwriting and television, stuff like that. Um, I won't delve too much into Nicholas Rogue uh, today because he'll come up later on, and maybe we'll talk more about him as we watch more of his films. But... um, RJ, at this point, I will hand it off to you because there's been much alluding to walkabout from you mm-hmm. uh, as, as this comes at number 10 uh, in the spine count. And uh, mm-hmm. you watched this only a couple of months ago for the very first time. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess we'll get your thoughts on it at this point. Yeah, you, uh, you're absolutely right. This has been long, long coming. I don't know if it's going to live up to the hype. But uh, as I alluded to a little bit in the end of last week's episode, this is the one film I refuse to watch. I won't. I won't. I won't ever watch this movie again. Uh, and the reason for that, I think you uh, mispronounced the title to this movie. It's not uh, Nick Rhodes' Walkabout. It's Nick Rogue's uh, snuff film Walkabout. Uh, I think this movie is fucking horrible. It is a disgusting show of pretension. Um, it's fucking horrible. So the point you kind of glossed over that I'll stress why I, I don't like this movie is that when they're shown the ways to survive in the wilderness by like the indigenous uh, boy, uh, you get a montage of about 20 minutes basically of just him killing, clubbing, torturing and basically dismantling live animals on the screen and it's not movie magic folks it's this not kid movie is, magic is clubbing to death countless animals he starts with the slow and um i can only imagine torturous death of a kangaroo taking several um sharp spears to the side until eventually getting basically um throttled by the young man then you see him clubbing wombats uh, I think there's a koala I, in there. I, I don't know if he kills a wombat. <laughs> there's a point. So there's a there, point where he throws an animal on the fire to get the blood for sunscreen. Uh, I'm pretty sure that might be a wombat. It was a hog. A hog? Yeah. Okay, well, 
hogs, whatever, man. He kills like fucking like wh- what would you even guess? Like 30 animals maybe? Um, well, I think I said several hundred, but yeah, there's, it had to have been at least like a good, like over a dozen. Yeah. So like at least a dozen and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can argue things like, well, he was like actually eating these animals and stuff like that. And okay, sure. Fuck whatever. Um, but it's fucking stupid, man. I hate, like, I absolutely hate fucking movies like this and this one in particular because they actually did it. But, um, so I'll just I'll go out here and just state that I am also a big hypocrite because I'm not like a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan or anything like that. And I'm not trying to be like a militant animals animal rights activist or anything like that. But I just fucking can't stand the way animals are used in movies, um, especially like movies like this. And it's actually one of the reasons I have a really big problem with pretty much almost 90 percent of horror movies uh is because a lot of the time you'll get a scene where you know the family dog dies or the cat gets winds up dead and it's just a really cheap cliche trope to like play on people's sympathies to get them like feeling like sad for for some reason like i i don't i don't know or i know why they do it but i don't know why it's so prevalent like why why people feel they need to do it like they just throw it in there as like some cheap thing um, going back to walkabout. So I know why I think, at least I think I know why Nick Rogue does it in this movie. He's trying to show this like contrast between like life in the city versus like life in the wild. And you even get that little scene where it's like, after you watch the indigenous guy for 20 minutes, like struggling to like catch these animals and club them, you see like Oh, a white guy in like a Humvee just shoot like a water buffalo or something and he rewinds it and plays it again and he rewinds it and plays it again and it just like keeps going and it's like this weird juxtaposition contrast that he's trying to do but I don't think it works I think I like I see what he's trying to do but I think it's it has the opposite effect I think it glamorizes like animal cruelty um that's at least what I think like he's doing here um I don't know. I fucking I hate it. Like I hate movies like this. Uh, last year, you gave me Cannibal Holocaust, which I very thankfully had a animal uh, free version that you could select yeah, right cur- off the yes, start, courtesy of the Grindhouse releasing Blu-ray. Yeah, exactly. Um, I would prefer that. Like, so the other thing too is like I understand like in the seventies and like before that, it wasn't like a big deal. Like that that was a problem I had with Polanski's Macbeth too. Ooh, fuck. I forgot about that. I'll, I'll rewatch that one. But like there, there's a scene in that where there's like uh, like bears fighting dogs. And then like you don't see them fight. But in the next scene, you see them like dragging the bear and dogs like out of the room. And it's like it seem it looks really real. Like I'm pretty sure they just killed those dogs and like that bear just for that scene. So what was I even talking about? Oh, yeah. So, like, movies like 70s and pre like that, it, like, it didn't, I guess it wasn't a big deal to, like, kill animals on scene or for whatever reason, but I think it is now. Um, it's well, not something yeah. you could ever do now. And, uh, like, I understand, like, the preservation of cinema history and stuff like that, but to be very honest, like, I don't think they should keep releasing this movie uh, unless they take out that stuff. And then people would, like, people get all mad. They'd be like, well, you can't, like, take away like artistic expression or like it's already happened stuff like that but if it was up to me i wouldn't 
I wouldn't even have this movie as like an option. I just wouldn't have it. Right. Or anything like that. So I don't know. I've been kind of jammering for a while. I think people understand like my stance on this. I don't know if you want to add comments, well, critique, or okay. what whatever, I, whatever <laughs> response, I guess. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way of tackling this. So, I mean, like I, I, I knew what you were going to talk about. We never actually talked about this movie specifically, but I, I, you've made your uh, uh, feelings on like, like the depictions of like animal cruelty, simulated or unsimulated, uh, before yeah. I, I know them, uh, so I knew you were, that was going to be an issue. And like honestly, until you uh, watched this movie for the first time a few months ago, like I did not remember this stuff at all from when I watched this. Like this was like one of the first. Uh, like criterion films I might've watched. Um, like, cause they had a copy of this at like, it was like video gallery. And I think I would have watched the uh, VHS tape of it because I was like looking this up and like, um, like Roger Ebert was actually quite the champion for this movie. Like in, uh, ni- in 1971, he gave it a four star review. Mm-hmm. And then like when it got, uh, it, then it, that movie went, the movie went away like for a really long time, like no one really talked about it. It wasn't really available and it was edited, uh, not, but actually not due to the animal violence, um, which I'll, I will get back to. So it was, uh, but it's like kind of, kind of had fallen out of fashion and then it, um, it got kind of re, uh, put together and then started kind of making the circuit again kind of in like the mid nineties. And then, uh, I think his great movies review came out in 97 and then like, mm-hmm. Uh, the, cause like it, it had just been re-released and then like the following year, uh, 98 is when the, uh, blue or the DVD, the first criterion DVD came out. And so like my experience of that with the movie was kind of like, um, I mean the Outback has sort of this like real mystical kind of vibe to it. Like pretty well, like yeah. every, like it's like the shorthand way of like, like new age sort of thinking about the world. It seems to really come down to like, sort of like, uh, lots of like white guys kind of misappropriating, like the way, like the, uh, like Aboriginal mm-hmm. people there kind of think about like the, uh, waking time or dream time sort of stuff. And like, uh, Grant Morrison talks about it in like the invisibles comics. And like, that was kind of like this sort of idea of like Australia. And like, um, I guess I was always drawn to like survival stories and, uh, this sort of idea of like nature versus like civilization. And that was the thing that initially drawed me into that movie. Mm-hmm. So when I watched that movie for the first time and I would have, I'm thinking this would have been like probably I was still in high school. Um, I loved this movie. Like I thought it was just like really great and like beautiful to look at and like totally unlike anything else I'd ever seen. Um, mm-hmm. And like in the context of like how we're watching this stuff in the Criterion Collection, it's like the first real like art house movie we've watched, I think. Right. Um, like where it is like um, it, its structure like really is like more poetic um, mm-hmm. than is like a straight narrative. Because like it's like um, I was reading the one essay that's in with the Blu-ray and it's just like boils down to it's like you could show this movie to people who don't speak English and they would be able to visually follow along. Um, like it's yep. got like it's it's like a it has a storybook sort of like uh, cl- clarity in its narrative, I guess. Like you, there's yeah. like not a lot to it. I mean, I don't even know if like the boy and girl have names. I, I don't think they do. I don't think they yeah. I think it's boy and girl. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that was my initial like that's my my memory of Walkabout was like watching it like on VHS and I really liked it a lot. Um, I picked up the DVD at a later point and 
I don't think I ever have managed to watch that movie again since then. Like I'd start watching it and then I kind of have lost interest in it at a certain point. And like, so it's been years and years and years. Um, but then, uh, you uh, graciously donated your uh, copy of, on Blu-ray mm-hmm. to me uh, after you watched it, as you had no use for uh-huh. it anymore. Um, and then at some point, uh, I had this idea, this great idea. It's like, hey, RJ, we should do a podcast about Criterion films. And yeah. it's like, yeah, that sounds great, Jared. And then, of course, it's like, oh, what's 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 uh, disc volume 10? Oh, walkabout. Walkabout. <laughs> yeah. So we came to that point. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just going to talk about, like, we will definitely talk about the animal cruelty aspect. Um, I've been yep. trying to th- figure out uh, my take on it because I kind of find myself in this unenviable position of, like, defending animal cruelty, which I don't want to. Um, and, yeah. I, and I don't think I can. But I will just kind of talk about the things I like about this movie. Sure. Uh, the opening credits are amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. they reminded me a lot of like the, uh, uh it's like the Koi and uh, films. It's like these kind of like long abstracted shots of like civilization and like walled surfaces and brick walls and, um, these like this great, like seventies font of walkabout and the, the weird, like sort of mixture of like the John Barry score with the like didgeridoo. It's like amazing. Like, it's just like a totally interesting way to start your movie open. That's what I will say. Um, mm-hmm. There's a one shot in the movie that I think like is fantastic. And I don't know if like a lot of people pick up on it from when I was reading, maybe it's so obvious no one bothers with it, but there's this great scene when uh dad is kind of like reading a newspaper and he's kind of looking over the like deck of his house and he's got mm-hmm. his two children and they're playing in a swimming pool, but like directly beside the swimming pool is the ocean. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. I, I think it's like this amazing, like, just like simple way of just talking about how um, moderated our life is, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it really sets up like the rest of like the, the metaphors that the film kind of is presenting. Um, right. The one thing that like, I really loved about this when I, like when I was watching it again, the thing I recalled immediately was the insects and the flies. Um, like the way that the movie shot, like it's kind of like the cinematic way that, um, if people are familiar with like Mike Mignola comics, how like his page layouts with like Hellboy and stuff like that, he has these like shots of like, like he'll focus on these little details, like gargoyles or like little, like weird, like things like faces, statues around a space. And he'll just like kind of have little panels representing those things. And it creates this atmosphere. That's basically what, uh, like, I think, I don't know. He probably is a Nick rogue fan. And like Mm -hmm. that he's trying to represent that in like a comic, which is like on a flat two dimensional page. And in a film, like it's kind of like, it's like a monorail where you get, you get to experience those things, not by like your eyes kind of floating over a page and you pick up on details, but like you are being driven along, uh, Nick Rogue's like editing vision of what this film's going to be about. And I mean, it's just, and he's just creating this like uncompromising uh, world that these children find themselves in. And I mean, uh, so he's a, he's a British filmmaker. I mean, he was making a film in Australia. So he's looking at this film from the outside. But I think one thing that I think people do agree with in Australia is that it's like, uh, if you don't like big monster bugs and things that can kill you, 
probably yeah. don't want to live in Australia because it's like probably one of the most like inhospitable places. Like even in mm-hmm. the cities, like there's these like monster creatures can like be hanging from your tree and stuff like that. Um, right. in, in the part of the world that we find ourselves in, we don't really, exp- we don't get that at all. We get like the occasional, occasional story of like a badger in somebody's backyard. Um, and like, or like some, like an animal comes out of like the mountain down from the mountains. And it's like definitely not mm-hmm. supposed to be where it's supposed to be. But I think in Australia, that's like a regular day occurrence. Yeah. Um, so going along with that, um, yeah. So there's like the horror of this film right from the get go. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. scene with dad, like just like firing at his kids. There's even this like sort of like apocalyptic sort of delay, like text that is there. Cause there's this whole thing where he's like, looking through these like notes from work about like geological reports and stuff like that. And he's like looking at this information and it seems like at that point he like, he's either been planning this or he's like been waiting for the last bit of data to come in. Cause there's something that's going to happen. He thinks. And that's what he's like, instead of like let, having himself and his children live through this world, he's going to kill them and himself rather than see that. Right. That's sort of like my take on it. Cause there's like, when there's like that radio that they do keep, when they're going through the uh, the desert initially, you get these weird things about like sort of like oh, there's some like it's all murmurs of like earthquakes and geological stuff that's happening back in regular society. But I mean yeah. that's like sort of a constant backdrop in the world. Um, but it's sort of like that sort of thing that like if a person's like uh, mentally unstable and that's the sort of stuff that people's brains can get kind of caught on and they mm-hmm. can really fo- hone in on that and become extremely dangerous but there's no way to prevent that it's just sort of like uh, the chaotic state that even like modern society can produce um, yeah. my next note was uh, Jenny Gutter and coming of age <laughs> like this this uh, yeah. film has quite the leering camera uh throughout which is lots of like like borderline upskirt shots and lots of longing mm-hmm. loving takes of her legs um i guess when she was initially cast for the movie she was 14 years old but by the time they actually w- w- shot the movie she was 17 years old but we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later um mm-hmm. Uh, I have a note here uh, on animal cruelty, but we'll just talk about that as one big thing. Uh, There's another scene that I really remember uh, this time was like the scene where her little brother is licking the salt out of her hands. It's Mm -hmm. just like the weirdest, like, man, that's just like something is off-putting about that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I'll leave it at that. Um, uh, Oh, so this will kind of fold into the animal cruelty thing, but so, uh, our, uh, indigenous boy, uh, David Gulpilil, uh, he became sort of a celebrity after this movie. So I'll kind of read a little bit about him. Uh, so he is a young, young man of the Mandhal Pungundi speech of the Dinjba language. As a young boy, sure. Uh, <laughs> yep, sure. sure. Uh, this is right off Wikipedia, so I, I you know, I check my sources and such. Kopilo uh, mm-hmm. was an accomplished hunter, tracker, and ceremonial dancer. Unlike many indigenous people of his generation, Kopilo spent his childhood in the bush outside the range of non-Aboriginal influences. There, he received a traditional upbringing in the care of his family. He attended the school at uh, Manangri in the Australia's northeast and Arnhem land, 
when he came of age, Gopillo was initiated into the uh, tribe group. His skin group totemic animal is the eagle, and his homeland is Maru. After appearing in his first film, he added English to several several indigenous lan- languages in which he was already influent. Um, mm-hmm. So in 1969, so two years before uh, Walkabout was released, uh, his skill as a tribal dancer caught the attention of British filmmaker Nick Rogue, who had come to uh, Marin Grita scouting locations for uh, the forthcoming film. Uh, Rogue promptly cast the 16-year-old unknown to play a principal role uh, in Walkabout. Uh, his on- on-screen charisma combined with his acting and dancing skills was such that he became an instant national international celebrity. Um, I love this bit. He traveled to distant lands, mingled with famous people, and was presented to heads of state. <laughs> During these travels to promote his film, he met and was impressed with John Lennon, Bob Marley, Muhammad Ali, and Bruce Lee. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, right. oh, you know what? I guess I'd be impressed with them too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, man, I read that. And I was just like, oh, so like th- this just seems like nothing changes in like hundreds of years. It's like, ah, oh, let's take this, this brown boy and cart him around and show him to heads of state like he's a collector's mm-hmm. item yeah but uh he does appear in uh the film crocodile dundee 2 what as as, as who as uh, a crocodile uh i guess as a uh uh person who lives in australia which would be accurate weird man oh he's in lots of movies uh we're, we're going to see him again uh, we're, I, we're, when we get to uh, Peter Weir's last wave, uh, yeah, he, he's he's there, okay. man, my friend. He's not going for, away. For some reason, I really thought that he was like, I thought they just got like an actual guy. From, they did. Like, well, that's yeah, a, yeah. I didn't know he turned turned into a movie star though. Yeah, no, he like, I mean, that's he, news to me. Oh yeah, no, he's he's around yeah. for the next like uh, thirty years, and I guess like he had some like, I don't know some issues with the laws, like it's like domestic abuse sort of stuff and like drinking stuff. It's just, it sounds like dark, okay. d- dark crap that happens. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't okay. know. Anyways, but so there is that idea that like, he is sort of like, uh, if, if someone were to defend, uh, the animal cruelty, it's like, well, it was done by, uh, an actual person that this is a part of their way of life, but we'll talk about that. Um, yeah. So I, the one scene that like that hot weather balloon research station scene in the movie, I feel is like mm-hmm. really out of place. Like when I, when it, when it, it doesn't hit, make any sense. it doesn't make any sense to me other than it sets up a balloon going up so they can find it later. Like, it's just like so strange. Like they didn't need it. Like that scene just, mm-hmm. it is like, honestly, it's like one of the most baffling scenes in all the movies we've watched so far where it's like, what is that? Like, I just, I don't get a feel. Yeah. I don't get a good feel for that scene at all. Um, the yep. tour, the tourist junk manufacturing plantation scene, I thought was like super disturbing. I, mm-hmm. I found it really like, God damn, did they actually like, is this a real place that they just shot like while they were scouting and they just filmed it? Like it, like, it feels like Seems legit, like, like it. it feels like that is like a real way of life there. And it's like, oh, yeah. like everyone just looks like terrible and like just exploitative. Oh man, that, that scene yeah. was rough for me. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there, oh, um, the scene with the, uh, the hunters, the, the Caucasian hunters with their, uh, guns, mm-hmm. my, my cat would, had come into the room and he was looking at the television screen, very concerned. Yeah, I would be too. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't show this in front of my cats. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to corrupt them. No. They're innocent mm-hmm. little cat brains. I hear ya. Um, during, uh, the, uh, indigenous boys, uh, I guess you call it his mating dance 
Uh, I couldn't help but recall uh, WWF uh, wrestler Papa Shango. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, Just just look it up. Close enough. Look it up. Um, And yeah, just the kind of that uh, final scene in the film where uh, the girl is all grown up and she's married to her uh, young husband and Mm -hmm. she's thinks longly back onto her life and you get the whole like just like the silliness of modern life like it's like you, it, i think the film is effective in the sense that like it really like out sh- it shows how like absurd like human like our life our civilization is um yeah like because yeah, when she first comes to that town with her brother and there's like the the uptight like australian man who just like can't be like troubled to help her at all it's just like mm-hmm. yeah that's kind of how it would actually be it wouldn't be like oh my god you're the missing children <laughs> like yeah. i can't believe we found you it's like no this guy would just be like yeah you're what do you want from me why are you bothering me he's like don't touch my stuff yeah um yeah. so on to the bigger so. the bigger thing that's here in front mm-hmm. of us okay so the thing i wrote here was is animal cruelty ever justified <laughs> to which i wrote no, <laughs> um, it's, it's not like, so, I mean, everything I tried finding about people who are fans of this movie, um, like just to see like what they have to say about this, people do seem to try to avoid talking about that as much as mm-hmm. possible. Like they just don't want to talk about it. Um, I listened to the commentary track, uh, which was, uh, with Nick Rogue and, um, a gutter. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, so I, I basically fast forwarded to the bit with the, the kangaroo hunting scene. Yeah. Which like, man, when that scene came up again, I was like, oh, right. This is probably mm-hmm. where RJ took his turn. Um, and like, well, it's, it's so painful to watch because it goes well, on forever and it's not yeah. like, it's not like a quick death or anything. Like it looks fucking torturous. Yeah. Like, well, see, I think what, I mean, what they, what that scene is the first time you see it, it's actually, it's fairly like brief. Like they don't like linger on it too, too much. But one, one of the things they do, they I think they do do is they reuse the entire sequence of that later mm-hmm. in the film. And so you get the sense that he's killing like many I, I i hope this is the case but like i think he's ki- like uh he's killing many kangaroo but in the actual film like in the actual production they killed one i guess um but okay so i watched the commentary track nick rogue does not talk over that scene at all um but and and uh, Jenny Gutter kind of just says, "Well, it's hard to watch, but she seems okay with it. Like it seems like there's some sort of strange justification for why it's okay. Because I don't know. I, the one thing that I really don't ever actually hear anyone ever state out front is that it's okay because it's art. Um, no one actually is going to say that. I don't think. But there mm-hmm. seems to be this like I'm inferring it. Maybe there's an implication that that is the case. Um, so, okay. I started looking up like kind of, I I did type in at one point, uh, like, uh, he's like animal cruelty or, or okay. Or like, what is a justification for animal cruelty? Cause I'm curious Mm -hmm. what someone would say about that idea. I mean, I think there's a problem though, is like that, uh, the, the, when you type in cruelty, it basically implies like a negative, Mm-hmm. Like, like it's, it's like, like you're calling something a, like animal abuse or animal cruelty. It's going to be like really difficult to actually apologize for that just because that's what it's called. But I guess it's like, right. how can you apologize for, can you uh, make excuses for animal death? Well, of course you can. Yeah. Okay. So another thing with this movie though, is like, um, I've, there's a couple of YouTube videos with some, uh, guys that are talking about animal cruelty in film. And there's, they were, they, t- they were talking about walkabout in one video because the guy's actually Australian and he mm-hmm. is actually, uh, on the same page as you. 
like pretty well. Um, yep. But the other film that gets talked about a lot in this context, though, is Cannibal Holocaust. But <laughs> if you know, now, if you compare, though, the amount of talk about Cannibal Holocaust to walk about in terms of animal cruelty, animal mm-hmm. cruelty discussion defines cannibal holocaust like no one yeah. makes any qualms about its use in, animal, in cannibal holocaust it's unavoidable everyone talks about it it's very well mm-hmm. talked about and i think it's because cannibal holocaust is only a horror film if, if that yeah. makes sense right and so yeah, but, no, but, that makes but with walkabout you have a film that roger ebert championed um mm-hmm. that's part of the criterion collection i i just read the one essay in the book that comes with it and there's no mention of it at all it doesn't get talked about people don't want to address that um mm-hmm. they're cowards <laughs> it's tough well it's tough to do, I guess, when you want to talk about this movie by this artist, uh, Nick Rogue, who made mm-hmm. like Don't Look Now and A Man Who Fell to Earth. Um, I think it, I, in my reading, there's a bit where like someone says that uh, in, this, in this film, it's not exploitation. And I was like, hmm. You're gonna have to elaborate on that. Thing. Uh, yeah, I don't know. See, like, I, I that's all they kind of say. Like, no one really elaborates on defenses on when it happens. People kind of just like their back goes to the wall, and they kind of go, mm-hmm. "Oh, no, I see." But and then they kind of move past that, and they're like, "We'll talk about all these other like uh, moments of like beauty or like poetic mm-hmm. interest in your movie." Um, yeah, I it, think that, I think that's bullshit. Because, like, frankly, like, I think the way you brought it up is, like, good because you just talk about the stuff you like and then you got to address it. Like, I think anyone who talks about this movie in a positive way and doesn't address that is a fucking coward and it's bullshit because you have to talk about these things because it's fucking real. And it's not that it's real in the movie. It's real in fucking real life. And that's why I think it's such an issue for me is because a lot of times people, like, find justifications for these things when in reality it it doesn't exist like it's never justified to do stuff like that like okay so nick rogue wants to show like civilization versus wild okay you can do i'm you know what if you if you were a big filmmaker and you were given a lot of time and you were given money to make a movie it's your job to find a way to do that in a different way than actually just fucking doing it. Like that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. I mean like, yeah, you're in, you're like totally right earlier on when you're saying kind of like, it seemed like the seventies was like the prime period of like mm-hmm. animal death. I mean, there was like, like the, the Italians in particular seemed oh, to like not fuck. shy from it at all. Well, cause even yeah. there's like the, the Mondo guys, like um, there's like the one film that you're never going to watch called Africa blood and guts. But in that situation, it's a documentary and it's Mm -hmm. supposed to be like stomach churning. Um, And then like in something like Cannibal Holocaust, I mean, I've heard like every justification for why it's okay and like in scholarly ways, because it seems like in that movie, people will try to like kind of like figure out a way to like defend why it's there. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of always like, yeah, but at the same time, (laughs) like, no, it's like that you could have simulated that. Like you didn't, or you either, you didn't need it, but but there's like this idea and like, we're going to start talking about cannibal Holocaust, I guess. Um, I mean, I, I I love cannibal Holocaust. I think it's one of the best horror films ever made. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. it's still super effective and a really powerful movie. Um, um, I will just say it's like, I find that I don't have a problem with like animal cruelty in movies at one point, And maybe I've been sort of like um, st- uh, toughened to it in some ways. Like it doesn't bother me, but like I haven't watched a lot of these movies since like becoming like a pet owner either. Like, and that's sure. like, honestly, like, I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I really didn't have a lot of contact with animals. And this kind of leads to like a- another point I have where like, 
like, so I guess like living in Western civilization, we're pretty privileged to get to live in a way where we get to enjoy the fruits of others' labors at such a distance mm-hmm. that we get to like enjoy the benefit of devouring all the clean, ready to cook, ready to eat animal flesh that we desire. And, but then uh, at the same time, we're able to like develop like a, a, a relationship with animals that's sort of like this distanced way um, that mm-hmm. has like nothing to do with our survival. But at the same time, well, behind the curtain, <laughs> there's like animals are being murdered like or killed however oh, yeah. or however you want to like uh morally uh, frame it all mm-hmm. the time and i mean this is the cognitive dissonance that i know uh and i get to enjoy that cognitive dissonance every day mm-hmm. whenever i fry up a steak which i enjoy eating greatly um mm-hmm. i think like one of the, like well like two things so the two things that like i feel that like we're uh i mean talking about animal cruelty because walkabout's not about animal cruelty let's just make clear about mm-hmm. that it, yeah, de- no. it 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 depicts it uh, it depicts something mm-hmm. called survival, I guess. Um, but we're framing it as animal cruelty. But there was like two films that like really had a powerful effect on me. Uh, the first was uh, actually it's also it's a special feature on a Criterion Collection movie, uh, Eyes Without a Face. But the uh, Georges Franju's uh, documentary Blood of the Beasts, which is set in a uh, post-war French abattoir, uh, just showing the like process of like killing cattle and like making like uh, and it's it, it is like uh it's like one of the best documentaries i've ever seen because it's like mm-hmm. so effective um it's just like i mean it's kind of it's like a what your modern day peta undercover video is but it was made in an era when uh, a director who's a like a acclaimed filmmaker could walk into an abattoir and just film it going mm-hmm. that wouldn't happen now like it's all done kind of like secretly and like it's all covered up or it's like very controlled by these companies that don't want to deal with like mm-hmm. an organization like PETA, which is kind of just opposed to the concept of eating animals, which I am not, I guess. But I mean, also like when I watched the documentary, the cove, which is yeah, just like, yeah, which yeah. just depicted like the, uh, the, the, the Japanese slaughter of dolphin, which like, that's a really strange documentary too, because like, I guess like it's main point was that like these dolphins are intelligent beings that like Mm -hmm. understand what's happening to them and this whole this act is just like monstrous beyond belief and then people can make that thing where they go well you know those japanese they're barbarians they'll just kill anything but at the same time it's like Mm -hmm. well how is that any different from like our cattle industry um and i mean living living in the world that like the part of the world that we live in i mean that's like a point of pride is our cattle industry. And it's like, it's very mm-hmm. easy to like, and it's weird that people fetishize uh, their flesh eating, I guess. Like people, like there was like the big flap mm-hmm. uh, in Alberta about like how their beef is delivered to them and whatnot. Um, and so like, mm-hmm. th- those, those conversations about like uh, treatment of animals isn't really being had. It's uh, at the end of the day, it's about jobs and the economy and it seems like people are more excited about the eating than what happens kind of behind those scenes. Um, right. And so like when you have a, f- then when that kind of like crosses this weird line into like film where like you're seeing animals being killed for the sake of art, um, mm-hmm. it's like, well, is this necessary? And I, it's not like I, 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 I thought about this a lot. Like I've been thinking about how to like, uh, defend what yeah. like what Nick Rogue does, which is like he basically films this like traditional hunt hunter in his environment, basically kill animals. So he's exploiting that aspect to basically say, mm-hmm. well, this is how the world is. And I mean, um, I guess like the closest thing you could make to an argument of why it's okay for this to happen in Walkabout is that um, 
I guess it's like it's consistent with the philosophy of the film that it presents, um, which is just like it's it's more closer to like a nature documentary, but it's also kind of sure. playing with like these juxtapositions of um, of civilization. I mean, there's no good or bad. Essentially, it's kind of mm-hmm. like it's just so matter of fact, and these are the things that have to happen. Um, yeah. And I mean, like there's like people like point want to point out like. Like there's like there's like the aspects of like, uh, like the failure the failure of communication is a theme in the film. But yeah. I mean, um, at the end of the day, I don't like I think it, like, in this film's world, none of that matters. Yeah. So I mean, it's like a weird film because in its own defense, it doesn't matter. Like your uh, I guess moral judgments against the film, it doesn't matter to the film. Mm-hmm. And like. I guess it's like if these scenes were in a different type of film where like it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, I don't think there's any like most films like this don't okay movies like this don't get made anymore. Um, yeah. Like and like you mentioned, it's like no one is killing animals anymore, or at least like mm-hmm. in movies that people are talking about. Like it's pretty rare because if it happened now, people would lose their shit. Like mm-hmm. I mean, people like go crazy. Like when uh, actors accidentally die, people like kind of hold that against the film. Um, mm-hmm. If like animals started dying for like uh, Hollywood productions. Like it just wouldn't go. I mean, I think like part of that was like that reputation haunted like even like uh, Heaven's Gate, and that's like 1980. So there definitely came a turning point. Um, like it's like I mean, someone could probably read up more about like the history of like um, animal protection and animal rights in like the film industry because it's horrific. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. and, like, yeah, like, yeah, like, I know. It, like the Western industry was like brutal to like horses and mm-hmm. whatnot. I mean, like trip lines and stuff like that. But it's like I will still watch those movies, um, and like I, it, I don't even know what. I've been so trained to like not really know what's going on, how they're achieving those effects other than when it's like, Oh, that horse just went off a cliff. Like that like would stand out to me. But like when horses are just going through stunts, I just, it's so, it doesn't register as cruel, but I mean, it is. And like, that's like, those are like the, those are the type of decisions that were being made by uh, film people in a period of time when that wasn't an issue. Cause maybe like at that point in time, their relationship with animals was a lot different where they were still seeing yeah. this like weird practical, um, back and forth relationship where, I mean, yeah, you'd like, you'd be, you'd be hanging out with your chickens day to day, but when it came to cook a chicken, you just yeah. went and killed it. And it was just like that. I don't, my, that mindset doesn't, like, I could never do that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the like anecdotes I'll throw out there is like, I remember like when I was like a little kid, I remember like my dad was like on my like grandparents farm and like I, he accidentally shot a squirrel. And like yeah. he was devastated, like he like mm-hmm. was completely like shaken by this. He didn't like enjoy that at all. He wasn't like, yeah, I killed that little animal. No, he felt really horrible. But I mean, in his day to day job, I mean, he was a sous chef. His entire like livelihood mm-hmm. at that point in time for like eighteen years was like the handling of animal flesh and preparing it. Um, and so, I mean, there's like, there's that disconnect of like the, and that's like, I think a constant thing, especially for like anyone that lives like in the urban environment in the West, mm-hmm. like you just don't have that relationship with animals. You're not very, uh, uh, realistic. And I'm talking about myself here, like not yeah. you specifically, but both of us, like we both have that mentality. Um, and I guess like, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, like, I guess like, I haven't really said what I feel about this movie. I think the movie is like, it's okay. Like I, I don't, I don't, I don't like it as much as I used to. Um, it's, it's an interesting movie, but, um, I don't think your life would depend on watching it ever. I think you can get the same 
message or like experience from his other films um and maybe oh yeah like i like all his other films i I think those are way better i would watch any like well i'm never gonna watch walkabout again but like i'd watch any of his other films like any day because i like those but like just to go off of like some of the stuff you were saying like i agree with a lot of the stuff you're saying like uh for one like westerns i've i like i I'm not as big in the westerns as you are, but I have a fondness to, towards them because it's what I watched with my grandparents when I was younger. And like watching them now, that does fucking pull me out of it too. Is like there are certain stunts you can train horses to do. Yeah. But then there's certain times where it's like, like I can just tell because like I've grown up with like horses and stuff like that. It's like, okay, no, they're really doing that. Or like even if it's not like directly, like if they're just like blowing shit up right beside the horse too, like. Like, even that, I think, is touchy. Um, but then, like, what you were saying with, like, a Cannibal Holocaust, like, I think Walkabout is way rougher than Cannibal Holocaust and, like, hmm. what they're doing to the animals. Like, I didn't watch – so, like, when I watched it, I didn't watch the animal scenes, but I have seen, like – clips i get like not clips of the scenes but like basically like gifs or like screenshots yeah (laughs) yeah so basically what they're doing right so uh i don't know like what we were saying earlier like there's no way to justify it and i don't think they should either and it's like you're saying with walkabout like this movie's not about that but like i feel like it needs to be addressed in that sense and this will be the only time i bring it up unless we it comes up again but this will be like the one big discussion about it and like what i wanted to say too like when you were going over that stuff like like i'm not like naive to this stuff either like i come from a farmer background like my entire family's livelihood is based on cattle ranching yeah um and also the last couple years my life i've been uh an animal behavior um grad student and it fucking breaks my heart to do some of that stuff so like needless to say once i'm done with that's like done i'll never do it again but what i i think like the reason i'm bringing it up is because stuff like that makes me more sympathetic for when i see things like this and it's not as much of a sense of uh like why they're doing it or anything like that. It's just like, how can you do this in a different way? That's like, one, you don't have to hurt animals. One, you don't have to, or two, you don't have to kill animals. If you got to do it, maybe you can like do it like some other way, like not with a real animal. But it's it's more just about like, I don't know, like ethical treatment, if that makes sense. Like just, I don't know, stuff yeah. like that makes me sad. So that's why this movie makes me sad. Yeah, no, I mean... I don't know. I, I, it's tough to like, it's, I, what I found really surprising was like in preparing for this, like just like kind of like the, uh, there's the right word for dearth, like just like the lack of discussion about it. Like people mm-hmm. will talk about how this is a great film. Um, yep. and then it's like, okay. So they like it for like, obviously for purposes of editing or for like, uh, like the, the, the poet, the poetry of the film. I keep using that, mm-hmm. uh, as a shorthand. Um, it's yep. like I mean it's it's like a dark harsh poem like the film ends on a poem being read or whatever like it really mm-hmm. brings it home and I mean it's like sort of like uh it's a really dark existential sort of story and I think it's like not even necessarily the best expression of those ideas um right. but uh, 
it's tough to it's, I found it really I found it interesting and kind of like unfortunate that like people don't people don't know how to talk about that and like mm-hmm. maybe it's like I don't know like I I really disagree with you though that the film should be edited out or like like I like, to me yeah, that's like that's that, that 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 to me is like that that's god it's like while well, these animals are dead they might as well leave it in now like if they're if they had to die i mean i think it'd be even worse in some ways to like pretend that's not the case that's like well the, the one thing that's, that's fair, yeah. well, well there is going to be uh down the road uh andre rublev apparently my understanding of it is that there is some animal cruelty in there involving a horse uh, or a cow being set on fire. Now, well, see, the thing, though, is like, I think what there's a blanket on this cow. (laughs) But at the same time, um, like, I mean, I guess it's like, okay, if you hire a stuntman to, like, cover himself in, like, Vaseline and light him up, Mm -hmm. he has a choice in that and he got paid. Uh, not right. so much with the cow, but I, I'm not sure. Like, there's actually, I think, there's the two versions of the film, and I think the Criterion version has that scene in it. But there's like actually the shorter version, which is, I guess, the director's cut. He ha- does not have that scene in it, and I could be wrong. But I mean, mm-hmm. so it it probably will come up again. But I think like Walkabout, it's like pretty like, I mean, it's intentionally like driven home in that film. Like these are mm-hmm. scenes that are definitely upfront rather than like this is how we decided to do the scene because we were kind of foolhardy and like the the idea of like uh animal being cruel to animals didn't really occur to us um like in in, in, like 1954 Mm -hmm. in soviet russia (laughs) um yeah and uh yeah no okay yeah i i agree like that's fair i agree with you like maybe not edit it out it's just i think the reason i say stuff like that is that's my own uh my own inner turmoils and anger coming out in that sure. sense like okay 1966 but, is on the rubab not 1954 i don't know where that okay. came from sorry but yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but no yeah that's that's just that's just a little bit of me talking yeah. not really <clears throat> the film critic no or it, the uh, it, you know, it's, you know what though? Like, uh, I mean, I'm of the opinion that's like, there's sort of like that weird line that, I mean, with, with what we're doing, it's like that weird thing of like, what is like, what's like the objective way of talking about a film? It's, right. that's not interesting. Like, mm-hmm. otherwise we'd all just like the same things, I guess, over and over right. and over again. And then it's when you start bowing to like who the, who the experts are. And I mean, it's a mm-hmm. subjective thing. And it's like, I mean, that's the thing with the film. It's like, it's really tough to ex- like explain away that stuff. So it's like, well, so people just don't talk about it. And that's like what, what it's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the one thing I wanted to bring up though, uh, kind of, I guess, moving past it to a certain degree, but then going right back into it was, I love when I look up a movie on Wikipedia and it has a legality subheading. So, uh, walkabout features several scenes of animal hunting and killing, most notably a kangaroo being speared and bludgeoned to death. The Cinemagraph Films Animal Act 1937 makes it illegal in the United Kingdom to distribute or exhibit material where the production involved inflicting pain or terror on an animal. So, hey, RJ, in 1937, people didn't think it was all right. Um, So, 40 years later, it was... They just—is well, that why Nick Rogue fucking went to Australia well, was to uh, tiptoe around that? So he can go kill some animals. Um, yeah. Well, I'm sure that wasn't on his mind, but I mean, uh, that's what Cannibal Holocaust wasn't like available in like unrated in the UK. I think for a while there, or it kind of mm-hmm. slipped through the cracks because it's on video, and then they cracked down hard, and it was unedited for it was edited for a very long time, or if it were just full out banned because I think it's been whatever it was self declared banned in thirty seven countries. Um, yeah. So since the animals in Walkabout did not appear to suffer or be in distress, the film was deemed to not contravene the act. 
That's bullshit. What do you think of that? Because I, 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 vivid, I, I know for a fact that, that that kangaroo is like making wincing sounds with a giant hole in its side. So yeah. I don't know about that one. That that's, no, that's yeah. Okay, that's, to- <clears throat> that's totally fucking wrong or yeah. not true. Yeah. yeah. Um, to, to, on the flip side here, we got the film also includes scenes of nudity featuring, uh, featuring Jenny Gutter, who was 17 years old at the time of the filming. The scenes did not pose a problem when submitted to the British Board of Film Classification in 1971 and later 1998. Since the Protection of Children Act 1978 permitted the distribution and possession of indecent images of people over the age of 16... <coughs> The issue of potential indecency had not been considered on previous occasions. However, the Sexual Offenses Act 2003 raised the age threshold to 18, which meant the BBFC mm-hmm. was required to consider the scenes of nudity in the context of the new law when the film was resubmitted in 2011. The BBFC reviewed the scenes and deemed them not to be indecent and passed the film uncut. Had this not been the case, the film would have been refused classification and it would have been effectively made it illegal to possess a copy of the film, including copies that had been purchased legally at the time, and then the creep catchers show up at your door. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's see. So now I'm glad I fucking got that copy out of my house. That was in your house, man. Yeah. So you no. better watch out. Well, they'll. I mean, they've got enough to grab me for already. I've already got a copy of Ellen Moore's uh, Lost Girls. That that thing is just Ooh. a ticking time bomb, man. I'll yeah, be... I've heard. I've heard about that one. Yeah, that's that's the one that's like, huh? I own this, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So anyways, I feel like I've been, I, I focused on the one part of walkabout and it's not really what I intended, but you know, that's just, it's, it's like, I've, I think I've said it before. It's, it's, that stuff kind of just pulls me out of movies. So yep. I can't, I can't really like, yeah, there's scenes I like, or like the, like certain sequences or shots that I like in this movie. And yep. there's a lot of movies I, that have good scenes or shots, but Sometimes they got stuff in there and it pulls me out and well, I just yeah I mean you, I don't, if you like it it's yeah. like finding something repulsive it's like well you know they have some other good qualities but uh no thanks <laughs> yeah no. so I don't know for uh, the people out there you you listen to this and then decide for yourself if you want to fucking watch this movie or not I, well I think what we're saying is uh, Cannibal Holocaust wins this round I think so man I would watch. Um, like I would watch Cannibal Holocaust over fucking Walkabout. Yep. Like with like, if I had to watch one like with the animal scenes, oh. I would watch Cannibal Holocaust yeah. over. So, so we have we have a new number ten in our uh, canon spine, I guess. Is Cannibal so, Holocaust? Yeah. That'd be pretty cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, actually, I was going to mention too is that uh, I had written down like, yeah, your most popular review on Letterboxd is uh, your rage at the cheapness of the dog death in The Hills Have Eyes. Oh, I fucking hate that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Do you have that review handy? Oh, uh, I don't. It's probably right on people the can, start page. Yeah, well, people can go find it if they yeah. want, I guess. But uh, yes. yeah, that that was another day where I was fucking livid. And it's like I said before, I that's, it's like I love horror movies, but that is like one thing that always pulls me out of it and then instantly makes it so I think less of that movie. Like it was like I said with Pet Cemetery, If it wasn't for... The one scene, like I, I really like Pet Cemetery. It's a four star movie, but it looks like they really fucking like kill that cat. Like yeah. I don't know if they did. If they didn't actually kill it, they anesthetize it or something. And even that's fucked up. So like, like automatically, like that just completely dropped that movie off for me. I was like, I can't even enjoy it. No, but I don't know. 
I guess at the end, uh, I guess like for me, uh, I'm a monster, and like I think I'm, I'm just like more offended by like bad filmmaking than that, like because um, because I'm horrible. But at the same time, yeah. I'm not like I would like if I was making a movie, I would it would never cross my mind to like do like kill an animal to like achieve something. It's like well, isn't there like we can do that another way, right? Like, oh, yeah. it won't be as, as effective. It's like, no, no, well, most people won't even notice. And like, in fact, by doing like what you're suggesting, it would just be like mm-hmm. a terrible idea. It's like, eh, I just like, it wouldn't fit into anything I would ever do. And like, it's, I'll, it's I'll leave that to the real, too. I'll leave that to the real, uh, the real brave artists who are willing to yeah. uh, kill other things to get their uh, point across, I guess. Mm-hmm. And well, sometimes, and then yeah. usually what winds up happening is it's like, not even like, it's like, oh yeah, walkabout's like, okay <laughs> yeah it, it's like it's like just like okay as a movie um mm-hmm. yeah. oh so i got your hills have eyes review all lined up here oh sure because that will never get talked about <clears throat> on this show ever so i guess well, this is the time yeah listen if you make a movie that needs to rely on animal cruelty or death to force sympathy then brother you and your movie are pieces of shit sorry Wes craven <laughs> i like your other jams what's that it's part of the story so the other dog can have revenge no fuck that that's stupid it's not necessary nothing but a cheap ploy to play on people's sympathies this movie isn't even the worst example i can think of uh there are others that actually kill animals on screen but baby this is what i watched today and fuck that yeah, fuck that movie, man. That yeah. movie's a fucking piece of shit. Like, <sighs> I remember, I, I, I didn't even know that stuff was in that movie when I popped it in. Yeah. And then I've, I see, like, so much, like, not even, like, cult praise, but, like, there's, a, there's like, a contingent of fans for that movie that really, like, heralded it as, like, a, a star shining gem from the 70s or, like, a new new wave horror movie or whatever. Like, but, man, that movie fucking sucks. Have you seen like, the you know, uh, the giant box set that uh, Arrow is putting out for that? Yeah, who who would fucking buy that? <clears throat> That's me. Uh, <laughs> uh, you suck. I know. That, that movie sucks, man. I, I have a real, like, vivid memory of, like, I I really contemplated buying that movie when it when I first saw it at a store. Like I remember when yeah. it came out, like uh, it might have been uh, Anchor Bay or something like that who put it out. And it had this kind of like metallic cover, and it had like um, you know um, what's his name, bulgy eyed man on the front, bald head, and um, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, you know, it's like I think this movie's gonna suck. Like I don't think it's gonna be that great. Like it's not gonna be like worth twenty three dollars when you're only making six dollars an hour. And mm-hmm. I thought long and hard about buying that movie. And then like, I think I finally did buy it. Cause I found it for like 15 bucks at like Walmart of all places. Um, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. And like, I like it. Okay. Like it's a, it's a three out of five for me. Um, mm. I don't think One it's star. like, yeah. I mean like, I think last house on the left is like a overall a better movie, even though it's got like some real stupidity going for it too. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. I, like I said, like simulated dog death all day long. It's stupid and cheap, but I mean, it's just a movie. It's, it's movie magic, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I, like I said, I just, the, what I think too, is like at this point, it's such a, like a trope or a cliche. It's like, why even include it? Like, it's like, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me, man. I guess that's the whole point of this whole episode. I just don't get it. Yeah. Well, uh, do you want to hear about from people who hate this movie as well? Yeah, sure. Well, My brother. Um, yeah, so we got, yikes, that was meandering and awful and often nonsensical. I, yeah. I don't yeah. know. These, these are the people who just like don't like these type I of movies, I guess. Sense. Pretentious yeah. drivel that would be laughable as a student thesis. As a criterion pick, it's fucking ridiculous. Effing ridiculous. 
Critics love this. I thought it was one of the worst films I've ever not seen. Wait, not seen, you might ask? That's because I stopped halfway through, fast-forwarded, and saw more than I ever needed to see. It's not about crushed spirits of city dwellers or a unique survival film. It's a hundred minutes experiment on useless camera shots, revolting imagery, and a story so dull and drawn out that I'd rather watch grass do nothing. Complete garbage. Hmm. Uh, I haven't seen any other rogue film or any rogue yet, and I've been really excited to start for a while, but this is utter shite. It's a racist, leering postcard from some Englishman deigning to shoot a film in the colonies. For those remarking on how visually striking it is, watch Wake and Fright, Fell, Last Ride, anything. This is just not very good. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's like the other thing too, is like, I don't know how like, uh, indigenous Australians feel about this movie. <laughs> like, that's another like viewpoint that I don't know. I think there are probably like big fans of like David Gullpillow. Uh, they probably love him, and I don't know how they feel about this movie. Um, so that's that would be another thing that would be interesting because most of the people I see talk about this movie are usually uh, white critics that mm-hmm. don't worry about those sorts of things until they're told to, and then they'll mm-hmm. be uh, mad about it. But I mean, there's people who will also talk about Birth of a Nation <laughs> and saying it's worth watching, uh, and it's like it's yeah. like that's not worth watching just because it's like boring. <laughs> mm-hmm. I said yeah, it. There's boring it's stuff. Boring. Out there. D.W. Um, Griffith's boring. Boring. He's so boring. Uh, there's a PI in my building who's from Australia. I could ask him what he thinks. Yeah, he'll start out by saying good day, mate. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring in all sorts of stereotypes. Give a spoon at him and say that's not a knife, that's a spoon. Things like that. He'll like it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, pretty well. It seems like people who don't like it just don't really like it because uh, they just found it boring. Um, I guess I am. Like, it's okay. Uh, I'd say, I don't know. I I have like my memories of liking it a lot kind of still like are in my mind, but I don't know. Did I poison it for you? Maybe because I've had to be like thinking about this film a lot, uh, preparing for this episode. Um, I just had to like, I don't know. I thought about it and thought about it and like, yeah, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's like at the same time, there's just like, there's definitely stretches of the movie that are just like long. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's very much a movie of its type. Um, like, I, have you watched Don't Look Now yet? Yeah, I have. Okay. I've seen a lot of Nick Rogue okay, movies, yeah, actually. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's only a couple, yeah. I, or not a couple, but the only, like, big ones I haven't seen, I think, are uh, Performance and uh, Insignificant or whatever it's called. Yeah, there's like, I yeah. I've seen everything else. Yeah, Insignificance was the one we were, I was trying to tell you about, where it's like, yeah. RJ, it's this movie, it's got, like, Albert Einstein and uh, Marilyn Monroe in it, and you're like, you're talking crazy. And it's like, no, no, there it is. I just don't know what it is. But then he actually made oh. a film, he made a movie called Eureka, and I was like, oh, maybe it's Eureka because of Albert Einstein, but it's not. It's Insignificance. You the Walter Matthau one? Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 Well, I think we'll leave it right there. Mm-hmm. And after the break, we'll keep rambling on about other shit. Traveling in a fight come on a hippie trail head full of zombies. I met a strange lady, she made me nervous. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, Do you come from a land down under? Where men go and men wonder. 
went a lot better than I thought it was going to. Like, in some ways, I thought we were going to be talking for 10 minutes. Yeah, that was a, it's a second longest episode. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is our audience. Um, anyways, folks, you can follow us on the Twitter at Criterion Creeps. You can email us at criterioncreeps at gmail.com. None of you have yet. You're letting us down. Fuckers. Yeah, fuck you. Uh, there's the Facebook page. There is the Tumblr. Uh, we're on Instagram. Uh, sure we're on, And we're on Letterboxd. I'm Jared Duncan. He's Barnloaf. Uh, Check it out. Yep. SoundCloud Criterion Creeps. That's where we be at. And you can subscribe, I think, probably to iTunes, Stitcher, other podcast platforms, and mm-hmm. download all those goodnesses. Review us, rate us. It helps. Follow sure, us. Sure like us, even if you don't. Do it. Just, just do it. Just do it. Do it. Do it for the animals, oh, man. That would be a great. That'd be a great T-shirt. Just, just do, do it. it. Yeah. Man, that'd be good. And if you had like a check mark to like signify that it's already done. Yeah, I like it. This is a hot idea. We're a can- Let me call Donald Sutherland. We'll see if I can get on this. Just do it with a kangaroo stump. Oh, Jared. Next week. You, you went the whole episode without doing any of that. Oh, I know, but <sighs> I, I got a creep, man. Next week, though. Spine number 11. Things are getting more serious. Kind of. Mm -hmm. Because we'd be talking some Ingmar Bergman. Bergman! We're going back to the land of black and white. It was nice Mm -hmm. to be in color for a little bit there. But we're Mm going to go to the beginning of art house cinema in North America in a lot of ways. Because we're going to be talking about The Seventh Seal from 1957. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. So join us, won't you? 